the second you hire me, it's going to be like a revival. We'll bring back all the former players. Fans are excited. Fill up the gym. And, oh, yeah, by the way, we're going to go get players. Here's my staff. Here's the type of players. Here's five targets that the second you hire me, I'm going to call, and I think we can get all five of them. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumors. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stanko running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Thrilled today to bring on a very, very special guest, Doug Gottlieb, a broadcaster who is formerly with ESPN, CBS Sports, and just recently joined the Fox team. You also may remember him from his basketball career, twice led the country in total assists, finished as the Big 12's all-time leader in assists, and eighth all-time on the NCAA assist list. Currently, he sits at at number 11. But Doug's candidness, and uh, people have called him outspoken, but I love his honesty, and I think he is clearly one of the best basketball broadcasters in the country. Delighted to have Doug Gottlieb join the Great Point Podcast. So, Doug, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Adam. You know, it's interesting. Um, It's all... What you learn the older you get is it's all about somebody's perspective of you. You know, if they like you, it's because you're honest. If they don't really <laughs> like you, or they're like, oh, you're super opinionated. And um, I think that I've learned a lot of things here in the last five years, um, both at the end of the ESPN run and throughout the CBS run, and now in the Fox. Uh, but the thing I learned most is you got to train your ear to listen for the right things to get people to understand who you are, because, you know, if, if people don't understand who you are and what you're about, then they're not going to know how to take you. It's, it's really insightful. And we're going to find out all about who you are and, and what you're about it as we go through. But Doug, I always like to start off the podcast from the beginning and okay. ask guests, what is your earliest basketball memory? Um, I don't remember going to a game when I was a couple weeks old, but my dad was head coach at UW in Milwaukee, University of Wisconsin, Milwaukee. And the story goes that I was born in January, and so my mom took me to one of their last games of the um, 75-76 season. Uh, My first basketball memory, I mean, I remember playing, first game I remember playing at was at Orange Olive Elementary School. And um, and then I remember playing. There's a, a, a league in California that's very big. It's called uh, NJB, National Junior Basketball. And you know now it's been around for I don't know 35 years or 30 years or so. I played in the first ever NJB game. I was in let's say third grade, and it was the fourth and fifth grade uh, game. And it was at Anaheim High School, and my team lost 19 to 18, and I had 16 points. Um, <laughs> wasn't high level. wasn't a high level game, um, but I mean, I have just. It's like one of those. So I, one, I have a really good memory, but two, um, there's so many basketball memories that when I close my eyes, 
it's like one of those movie scenes, like somebody before they die, you know, where you just see like memory after memory splashing together. I remember running underneath the bleachers when my dad was coaching at Long Beach State with Tex Winter and looking for, you know, loose change that fell from, fell from people's pockets. Uh, I remember being ball boy for Jack Haley and Reggie Miller's UCLA team. So I, I just, I have a smattering of, of uh, a cornucopia, if you will, of memories early in basketball. So, so take me back through that time. Uh, you obviously turned into an excellent, excellent player at the high school level and in college and then even professionally. But, but during that time, what, what was your relationship with basketball like just in terms of your, your training and, and developing that knowledge of the game? Um, I don't know. It's like our family business. You know, my dad was a coach until let's see here. He got fired. They got fired in 84. So I was eight. And then he went up to Oregon state for a year as an assistant with, with Ralph Miller. Um, so that's when I was eight and nine, he wasn't around that year. And then after that, he was always our coach. And with the exception of one year, I stayed back in eighth grade and I played with a team from Compton. Um, all year was awesome. I played in this, it's like uh, everybody played in the league called Slam and Jam when I was growing up, and there's a couple other L.A. City leagues, but I never played in them. And then that year, I remember playing in one with a Compton team. But I don't know, basketball is just what we did. So we watched as we were. I mean, we loved all sports, and my dad was big on, you know, I played baseball, I played soccer, I played tennis for a couple years competitively, um, and I played football every year except for one up until high school. But, you know, basketball is kind of the, the family business, and he ended up turning the travel teams into a basketball academy, into a, uh, like, not really a scouting service, like a placement service kind of for, for where he'd, he'd act like an agent but work for the kids and get paid by the by the kids' parents. Um, so, I don't know, we just, we'd always go to games and watch games, and, and, and uh, it, my brother likes to say that in our house we didn't have um, – we don't have opinions. We have facts that are stated as opinions. <laughs> and so we'd argue about games. So that's, I don't know. We just, and I used to uh, go to games with my dad when I was in junior high school and I would play a game called, what are they running? <laughs> and try and try and pick what, what a team was running before anybody knew what they were running. I'll never forget that we watched, um, we had modern day high school, which is a uh, famous high school in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And we were watching JWM North play. And they ran kind of a one-four high set uh, into a UCLA cut into the flex. And I was telling him it's flex, and he's arguing it's not flex. And I was like, Dad, it's flex. It's one-four high, UCLA cut. The wing then drops to the corner, and it becomes flex. And he's arguing back and forth. So after the game, we went up to ask the coach, what are you running? And he goes, oh, yeah, it's just a different way to get into flex. <laughs> and uh, it, was, it was the first time I won money off my dad. And, uh, it was the first of many because, um, my dad was, uh, he, he, he grew up in on Long Island or the Bronx and moved to Long Island. And he came from that generation of coaches, started as high school coaches that went to basketball clinics. And, um, he believed in, you know, like Larry Brown, like fundamentals every day. He was a very big preacher of passing, catching, cutting, shooting and spacing offensively, but he wasn't really wasn't really a diagrammer. Like he diagram plays on the board and you kind of had to get the gist of what he was saying. That wasn't really his, his bag, if you will. And I always found it fascinating that, that it kind of worked for him. 
but it didn't work for me. Whereas I'm always been a kind of tinker and X and O were on a board. And so he found it, he found it interesting how I viewed basketball and I found it interesting how he viewed basketball. And then my brother who, um, I think even he would admit wasn't as into ball when he was a kid as I was, like I was all about it. Like my dad would go, let's go to the gym. And Greg would roll his eyes. Oh, come on. <laughs> and I was like, let's go. And, um, my dad had to really push him, really had to put his foot up his ass to, to get him to really play. And he became a really good high school player. And for me, it was something I love doing. And I love, and, uh, then, you know, now as a basketball coach, like he loves the gym. He loves everything about it. He loves ball. He loves scouting. He loves recruiting. And it became such a good bond between the two of them as my brother became an adult. And so I think that's probably the thing he misses most about basketball is my dad's not around. But um, yeah, so my early memories were a little bit different than other people's. Uh, we also used to play full court nerf hoop in my parents' rooms. And uh, there are many a nightstand. You know, remember you used to put the Nerf hoop on the back of a back, uh, back of the the door. Of course, of course. And uh, yeah, I could make all kinds of shots off the off my my dad's closet, and there were dunks and fouls and tears and all kinds of stuff going on there. So, at what point then did you did you realize that that you were a pretty good player? That obviously you were around the game. You know, but when did it, when did it really occur to you? So I used to go. There's a kid named Garrett Phipps down the street from our house and uh yeah they own the street down the street from my house house down the street from my house and i used to go to garrett Phipps' house and shoot every day and i would it's funny because i was thinking about broadcasting because i used to announce the games while i was playing them like i was brent musburger or i was howard Cosell or whatever and uh when i'd come back if i'd make the game when he shot i'd run back making the <sighs> making the sound like i was the crowd and um I would, uh, I'd slap fives. My mom had this uh, bird of paradise plant that has these big fat leaves and I would slap fives at the bird of paradise plant like it was a fan. And so I was always pretty good. I mean, it's always kind of clever as a pastor. I was a really good shooter as a kid, which is weird because, you know, I couldn't shoot in college. And, uh, as a really good shooter, as a kid, I, I had this weird shot where I, my left thumb would like tap the ball when I'd shoot and I had this sideways spin to it. And so um, I was I was a very good player, but I was always small, and I was fast, but not necessarily explosive. But I was always I was get, I was a good athlete, and um, I was good at basketball. I was probably best at football as quarterback, but like you know, my dad's like was like I don't know five nine, and um, we were like I'm not gonna be a quarterback, and and I was good at baseball, but for whatever reason, I was catcher and I was small. So everybody thought, well, let's, let's put him out in the field. And I played catcher my whole life. And I was not a very good second baseman. So as we got around to high school, uh, again, after staying back a year, I grew and I grew from in 13 months or 14 months, I grew from like five, one to five, 10 when I started high school. Wow. And, um, I just kind of started focusing on it. I didn't think I'd be a football player. And I just got better and better. And then, you know, through work with my with a strength coach and a speed coach and, you know, constant work in the gym, I went from being kind of a low mid-major. And then right before, you know, summer before my senior year, I kind of blew up like ABCD camp and on the AAU circuit and made myself into a, you know, high major All-American Division One athlete. So during that stretch and anyone who's been around the, the summer scene knows how much 
you know, especially back in the ABCD camp days. I mean, everyone's looking to, you know, for exposure and they want coaches to notice them. So it becomes, you know, sort of a, a shoot first type deal for so many players just because the kids are so talented and used to being the, the go-to guy on their, on their high school teams. So, you know, I attended uh, quite a few ABCD camps. So, I mean, how much did the other guys love playing with you as a guy that, that distributed the ball as well as you did? I mean, I would, I would think, and you know, I, I hate, I don't mind talking about my, myself and my theories, but, and so I'm, I feel a little weird talking about it, but uh, I there's never been a guy who's ever not liked playing with me because I dime them up, I, I you know I find out where they want the ball and I put it there on time, and who doesn't like that, you know? So, yeah. um, and and you know the thing was uh, my dad I think coached me both years, yeah at ABCD she coached coached me both years, and um, so we played really good team ball, we played pretty hard, and the first year was all California guys, and I was pretty good, but I was I mean we had like. Ricky Price was awesome. Tony Gonzalez. Um, I mean, you go back to our team and was this 90 summer of 93 at Ypsilanti. It was sick. It was Tremaine folks like took over the camp. Kriston Johnson. We had an awesome team. My second year, I was uh, closer to the best player on our team. And, um, and, you know, like those camps are also really good setups for point guards because it's a lot of, you know, high ball screen, a lot of transition. And then, you know, the, just the simplicity of knowing how to, knowing how to feed the post, you know, knowing how to make the right passes, the right shots and play within yourself. You'll get the ball plenty of time. So, but to answer your question, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you, if, if, if you have a guy who's going to make you look good, you're going to like playing with him. And my, my, uh, solitary, uh, my, my singular goal in playing was to make people look good. Right. Right. Did, so was that the part of the game that you enjoyed the most? Oh Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think if my dad went back and said he made one mistake, it would be when we would play um, AAU basketball, he would put too many players on my, uh, on our team. And so I wasn't like in high school, I would score a ton and we had one other really good player, but in AAU, like I was just one of the guys, you know, like my Going that same summer, going to my junior year, we had J.R. Henderson, Miles Simon, Kriston Johnson, Tony Gonzalez. Like we had studs, wow. and so like I just played, you know, pure point guard as it used to be played, which is, you know, you come down, you take a shot in transition. Otherwise, you know, you get the ball to guys who can play, get them to them in their in their spot. And um, so I became a little, at times, a little passive as a scorer, and I think that that probably hurt me some when I went to college instead of being more of an alpha um, in AAU ball. But um, but yeah, I mean generally. Um, you know, passing always came easy to me in soccer, came easy to me, obviously, in football. And, you know, you can, I think, like, I see it with Lonzo Ball. Like, you see a play ahead of where it develops. Or, you know, when we're recording this podcast, this is right after Paul George kind of missed uh, Lance Stevenson underneath the basket in game one of Cavs Pacers. Well, like, if it was me, or if it was Lonzo Ball, or if it was Jason Kidd, or if it's, you know, pick a really good passer, that pass is made before he's open. Like just as soon as LeBron goes to double, and as soon as there's a just a crease, you fire that ball in there because once every you see it's open, it's too late, you know. Right, right. And so that that part of it always, yeah, it was. I don't know, just super instinctual, and um, you know, it was hard. It's hard for guys. Uh, it's hard to teach that to other people, that that instinct. But that was obviously my favorite part of basketball. You talked a little bit about the uh, the idea that that you were starting to become very recognized, 
the recruiting is ramping up. And I read an article yep. from from that stage of of your career. Uh, I think it was your junior year when in this article they said Gottlieb has colleges such as Syracuse, Florida, UCLA, Washington, Stanford, Georgia Tech, and Iowa in mind. Despite the fact they've all contacted him, he realizes it's still early. So, first of all, what was that recruiting period like for you in terms of meeting these coaches and uh, and going through the whole process? Well, I mean, it was a little different then. We didn't have obviously Twitter and you know ways to tell yourself or whatever and celebrate the fact you got an offer from the school. Um, but uh, I remember it. You know, my dad controlled most of it just because he knew all those coaches. And so, I mean, I think when people ask you, you just kind of throw out names of somebody you got in a letter from one time, you know. <laughs> and we used to do funny – we used to do stuff like I had a – there's a guy who sat on the end of, end of the bench on our team named Sammy Grease, a little Egyptian kid, about 5'7". And so back then, I don't think they still do it now, or they'd send you like a questionnaire, you know, and that's how you get on their mailing list. And the mailing lists are really annoying. You know, you get stuff from like Army every day and Air Force every day. And when Kevin O'Neill was at Tennessee, you get like 10 pieces of mail from Tennessee every day. Yeah. So we had Sammy fill out a couple of these questions. All the guys at the end of our bench fill out these questionnaires. So they were getting mail from like Air Force, the Naval Academy, uh, like you name the team, Towson State, like schools you'd never go to. Um, <laughs> just as just, just kind of a gag. So. You know, I, I think my junior year, I was recruited by mostly mid-majors. And then the two high majors that had offered me a scholarship were Virginia and Jeff Jones was the coach. And Florida and Lon Kruger was the coach. And um, um, Florida really did a good job. They had an assistant who came out and he was recruiting me and Miles Simon. Miles was – we played together since – I think fifth grade, we played against each other in fourth grade and then he joined our team and um, they, uh, they recruited miles. He actually took a visit there and loved it. And then on the flight home, he decided it was too far. And so they missed on him and then they missed on me as well, but they did a really good job recruiting both of us. And that was that in Virginia were my first two high majors. And, you know, it's like, the the first ones that fall in love with you, you have a special place in your heart, and you have the hardest time cutting them out. Right, right, because they appreciate you as a player, so you have yeah. There was a guy named Ron Ron Stewart was the assistant coach, and Lon didn't have to do anything because my dad knew him because my dad had coached him in college, and uh, so Ron Stewart basically like lived in Southern California for like three months, and he'd volume between my gym and Miles' gym at Modern Day. And then he'd pop over, and I had a buddy named Mark Seaton who went to Stanford who was at Servite and go to his gym. And so he's just kind of always around. And we were like, we should go do this. And Florida at the time was convinced they were getting Vince Carter. And everybody, you know, no, every, at that point, people had heard of Vince Carter, but nobody had played with Vince Carter. He was my age. And Miles had played against him, I think, at ABCD, at uh, Nike camp. Remember, Nike and ABCD were split. Right. So. Uh, yeah, so that's that's that, that's how it kind of first started. All right, so then how did you end up choosing Notre Dame? So um, kind of randomly, actually. So I got home from ABCD camp, and I really played well. I was probably, I don't know, the second best or third best point guard there. Stefan Marbury was considered the best player there. We didn't play against Steph. 
Um, but I played really, really well. And so when I got home, suddenly now UCLA was interested. Um, and the first phone call I got was from John McLeod Notre Dame. And I, I distinctly remember the phone call because he said, Dougie, Coach McLeod here. <laughs> and I was like, okay, Coach, how are you? And he goes, uh, tomorrow, Dougie, we're going to announce we're going to the Big East Conference. How'd you like to be Notre Dame's starting point guard their first game in the Big East? I was like, that sounds pretty cool. I was like, well, hey, Coach, can I uh, – he's like, do you want to visit? I was like, Coach, I'd love to. Can I come? Who's the best team you play this year in football? And he said, Michigan. So I was like, I'm in. Done. So I had set up my recruiting visit. Florida played Auburn that year. Auburn was on probation. They went they went undefeated, but didn't qualify for national championship. Um, but my first visit was Notre Dame, Michigan, Notre Dame Stadium. And so, yeah, it's one of those deals where my dad, I think, was super educated in the process, but so much so that we kind of lost track of ourselves. We're like, well, he's like, you're going to make all five visits, and then you're going to take your time and make your decision, but it's not really kind of the way it works. So we right. take, I take my visit, and I have a great time. Notre Dame loses in the last second field goal. People are, like, crying in the stands. I just thought it was the coolest thing. Like, people cared enough to cry in the stands because your football team lost. And I really enjoyed not just Coach McLeod. Fran McCaffrey I'd made a connection with. He was the assistant appointment. He's a four-point guard. Um, he and my dad know each other for a long time, and Franny was a straight shooter. Right. And uh, Ryan Hoover showed me around, Pat Garrity as well. And I just, I like, you know, you like the guys. Or The thing about Notre Dame is that level of kid, white kid, black kid, doesn't matter. You got, you know, really high-level people. And um, I just felt like, wow, these are really nice guys. I'd like to play basketball with them. And so they kind of cranked up the pressure because there's a guy named Jeff Billett. I don't even remember Jeff. Jeff went to Rutgers. Yeah, Christian Brothers and Academy then, in New Jersey. Yes, yeah. And so we had a we had a um we had a kid from Christian Brothers who was older and you know, Jersey Christian Brothers kids really wanted to come to Notre Dame. And so Jeff really wanted to go to Notre Dame was what they were telling me. So he was like the backup option in Arizona, the backup option in Florida, the backup option at Notre Dame. He was just a really good player who like everybody's got a pecking order, right? Right. And so I I took an unofficial to UCLA and I didn't like it. And the problem with UCLA was like there's a bunch of things working against them. One, they kind of screwed up and recruited me for a long time. They, I was probably a secondary recruit. So I remember going there with some of my teammates, like J.R. Henderson, who signed there and was a great ahead of me. And they'd get all the people to go in the locker room at halftime and they wouldn't get me. And I was like, are you? You kidding wow. me? You know, and and then one time they gave me tickets to like a cow game, like Jason Kidd, and it was up so high that I was like, I'm not even going up there. And my parents, my dad had season tickets, so we had tickets. It was just more like, hey, if you recruit me, like <laughs> recruit me. And my sister was a cheerleader there. My brother went to school there. Um, my sister babysat Mark Godfrey's kids. So, like you know, now 20 years hindsight, I'm hoping that, and I would guess that the reason they didn't fully commit was they knew they couldn't recruit me and then not play me because that would have been really bad, you know? Right. So um, so by the time they got around to offer me a scholarship, which was like in July at the Vegas tournament, one, they had taken a commitment from a guy named Illusion Me Man, 
who was a year younger than me, and he's like the greatest point guard that never was. Santa Ana Valley High School, six foot five, next Magic Johnson, yada yada. And so Coach Herrick was honest. He was, yeah, Dougie, five guys at UCLA. Doesn't matter what position, we take the best five guys. I was like, well, Coach, I'm six feet tall, so I have one position. I was like, what about Luge? And he was like, oh, he'll never qualify. We just had to take him for the papers. <laughs> so, um, so they had some ground to make up because they had really not recruited me hard for a long time. And then I went up there and unofficial. And at that time in Southern California, there were three AAU programs that were above everybody else. Uh, there was ARC Mid Valley, which is like kids from the Valley. There was Simon Jam and there was the Orange Express, which is Orange County Express, which is our team. So um, J.R. Henderson was my friend. He went there. Chris Johnson played with us. He went there. Then they had like Toby Bailey, Charles Abandon, who used to play with us when, we were, when I was like in fifth grade, I think. Charles played with us. Um, this is the year they won the national title. Right. Went up there in unofficial, and they were just like not warm at all. And I would, again, this is like 20 years of hindsight. I, I wouldn't. We'd be offended if if you ask them and they go like, well, you know, we remember him as a freshman and sophomore. We're like, dude, this guy's not good enough to play at UCLA. But I had really improved. Um, right. And, and, I, and I think some of it was also that we were just rivals from AAU programs. Like, you can't just stop being rivals all of a sudden. You know, it was really it was hard. when you Like, Toby Bailey and I, we played against each other since seventh grade. We hated them. You know? And I didn't like him. Yeah. I didn't like Moose. I didn't like his dad. Like, they're great people. But I didn't like at the time, like they were the enemy kind of. Yes. So, um, so I just I I just didn't feel like I could trust UCLA. I thought they lose would go there. They'd recruit over me. They were still recruiting Stephon Marbury. I don't know. I felt like it was too close to home. So I was set to visit Michigan State with Robert Trailer, and Trailer committed to Michigan. Robert Trailer, Albert White committed to Michigan. And Izzo had done a great job. I really liked Izzo. But at the time, Michigan State wasn't anything to write home about, you know? Yep. And so, uh, Florida, I just, we were probably, like, they were probably after me too long, and I was probably too wishy-washy. And so, UCLA, so Notre Dame was like, hey, look, you don't commit this week, Jeff Phillips visiting, and once he visits, it's whoever takes the scholarship first. So, I just kind of did some soul-searching and thought, you know what? Notre Dame is the best of both worlds. You'd be on NBC, CBS, ESPN. And if you can't play basketball, you can do anything you want with a Notre Dame degree. And I could start right away as a freshman. So I went there. So, all right. So you go to Notre Dame. Your freshman year, you play in 27 games. You start 23 of them. So John McLeod's yep. promise does come through, unlike some coaches, which will tell you you'll start as a freshman and then don't. Um you lead I mean, the I really team. started every game. What happened was my first two exhibition games, the first exhibition game I played eight minutes. And what happened was, this happens to most freshmen. Like, you think you come from a well-coached program, and I did. Your dad's a college coach. He was. So you're like, oh, I've, I've been to college practices. I know what it's like. And there's another point guard named Admore White. And Stanko, when I tell you he kicked my ass, like, I might never have my ass kicked like I did the first couple weeks in practice. <laughs> Just because, like, like, dude, when you have grown men screening you, I mean, you don't, you just keep running into screens, 
and and your body, my body changed. When I got there, I was 160 pounds. When I, my first game, I was 177 pounds. So I was carrying a little more weight. I was really muscular. It was when creatine first kind of came in. And uh, I was just, I was, I was shitty in comparison to Admore. Um, but he was, he was like, at the time, he, he would get really tight in games. And so whatever, whatever he could do in practice, the coaches are like, or Fran McCaffrey's like, look, you're still our guy. You got way more talent. You just got to calm down, slow down. You'll be fine. First exhibition game, play eight minutes. I'm like, you know, I'm beside myself. Like, what am I doing? You know? And the second exhibition game, I played a lot better. And I probably played like 16, 18 minutes, but I got in, I got four fouls. And so I kept getting fouls. He kept taking me out. And uh, my dad told me something after that game, which is a, just a great coaching tidbit, where he said, hey, you know, if you don't get your first, you can't get your second. And that was my philosophy the rest of my college career, which is, doesn't mean you don't play defense, but just don't get a stupid first foul. If you don't get a stupid first foul, like John McLeod would do that stupid thing where he'd take you out with two fouls. Like Eddie Sutton was great. Like he, like you get five, don't, don't, don't get your fifth, you know? Right. Uh, he knew like the chances of a point guard getting his fifth foul. Like I never, I don't, I never fouled out of the game. So uh, anyway, first game of the year, we play Akron and I had been playing better in practice and starting to get my sea legs, if you will. And I mean, he pulled out more right out. I felt bad. He pulled him out for like the slightest mistake. He ran the wrong play. And um, I come into the game. I'm going to tell you it's two minutes in the game. And the first time down the court, I see Pat Garrity, and the, the post is pushing in his back, and he gives me a little signal for a spin lob. And I throw a spin lob alley-oop. He lays it in. And, like, from that moment, it was over for Admore. It just there's nothing. He started the next four. Like, we played Indiana on the road, and we got pummeled. But, again, he pulled Admore, you know, two, four minutes in the game. He actually played us together that game. And, you know, nowadays in college basketball, he would have played us, me, him, and Ryan Hoover together. That would have been our best. Instead, yeah. he won a true three-man. He was kind of a classic college coach. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I, I – it was uh, 26 minutes a game, whatever. And uh, it wasn't – we played a little bit too slow. We were a little bit overmatched talent-wise for the Big East. Big East was loaded. But I learned a lot, and I really, really improved at the defensive end with Coach McLeod. So you lead the team in assists and steals, which I think people seem to forget about your time at Notre Dame. And you just said it, you're playing in a loaded Big East, which includes obviously Ray Allen, Kerry Kittles, but you got the chance to play against Allen Iverson. What was that experience like? Allen Iverson. So Jason Kidd is maybe the fastest, you know, he and John Wall, like the great end to end speed, right? Mm-hmm. Stefan Marbury. Uh, Tyron Lue, who I guarded when I was at Oklahoma State, had great quickness. Allen Iverson had both speed and quickness. He was just this rare combination. Most guys have one or the other. We nearly beat them at our place, and we put in a zone the day before the game. We, he'd never played zone before. I don't think he played zone after. We nearly beat him. I mean, he was just so fast. We did go man at the end of the game. I actually took the ball from Iverson. He was just wild. Um, he took some bad shots. He had no concept of shot selection. He took a lot of chances defensively. You know, for me, the way they want to play defensively was right up my alley. You know, they had a one-two-two press with uh, Jerome Williams' junkyard dog on the ball, and I've never been able to be pressed in my life. So, um, 
you know, we, we broke their press and got easy buckets and you know, probably should have beat them if we were a little bit better, a little bit tougher. They were just mentally and physically tougher than us. But guarding Al Iverson, I mean, he, I think he had first game, he had 26, but he took 26 shots and he just quick and fast and completely fearless. He dunked on our seven footer, Matt Gotch. He not only dunked on him, but he waited for him. Stole the ball, saw the seven-footer coming, waited, 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 and then just went and dunked on it. It was filthy, 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 filthy. Um, he was a freak, total freak athlete, and had a very kind of cool sense about him. Like, we started five white guys against Georgetown. <clears throat> and my boy, Anthony White, who's now an assistant at Lehigh, he remembers this like I do. Um, uh, we're standing at the free throw. We're standing, guy shooting free throw, and, and Tone checks in, and I'm standing next to Alan Iverson at the time. His name was Bubba, his nickname was Bubba Chuck. I don't know if you remember. Yeah. Still Bubba Chuck. So Tone comes in, he daps him up. He's like, "What's up, Chuck?" He's like, "Yo, what's up, man? What's up with all the white guys? They don't let my <laughs> brother start." And I was like, "It was. I was. We were all cracking up for the next couple minutes over it. One because he was writing, two because it was funny. So um, I liked him. I mean, he obviously had just a walk to where you could tell he was different." Um, he was a little bit smaller than me, but man, could he go? I mean, he just had, he had just a different level of athleticism than everybody in the court. That's unreal. That's unreal. So Doug, obviously everybody remembers, well, and they bring it up all the time, your departure from, from Notre Dame. But what, what I find about interesting is not rehashing, you know, the past and, and you could talk about it if you want to, but your, your dad was quoted. I read something as, again, as I was, I was researching for this podcast and he said, he was in a very difficult situation in South Bend, and we thought he was handling it well. But apparently he was internalizing his emotions and feelings, and it built up. So what was it exactly that you were going through in terms of the, the difficulties? Well, I went through uh, what I think you would, you would classify now as, as depression. Uh, I, hmm. don't, I would not correlate the, the depression to stealing three kids' credit cards. Um, I wouldn't because they, the, the timelines don't... When, when I was getting my ass kicked in practice, I just had a couple of emotional breakdowns. You know, it was well, you don't understand what it's really hard at the time. I remember when I signed at Notre Dame, Mark Gottfried. I mean, he was he was he was busting my balls, but he was totally accurate. So he's like, "Hey, Dougie, we play Notre Dame next year." Oh, you like that weather, huh? Wait till we come and play in December. Talk to me then. So um, the first month of practice was October 15th when practice started. And it coincided with fall break at Notre Dame. So everybody else got to go home. And I'd been there, you know, since mid-August. And I'm telling you, like, South Bend, for people who don't know, it's at the it's at southeast tip, just off the southeast tip of Lake Michigan. So you get not just lake effect snow, but you have, like, constant overcast weather. So – the entire month of October, the sun didn't come out. And I don't know whether I was homesick, which is probably part of it. I was playing shitty, which is probably part of it. I wasn't doing well in school, which is probably part of it. Um, you know, I, I probably put a lot of pressure on myself to, you know, to go and tear it up and start right away and dominate, you know, like any kid, uh, which is probably part of it. Um, but just the fact I didn't see the sun, you know? Yep. And yep. so I just, I had, I went through bouts of, depression where I, you know, walked into Fran McCaffrey's office and I just started crying. Couldn't stop crying. I want to go home, you know, and it was in, like, now it's like, I guess embarrassing, but it's also, it shows the trust I had in my coaches that I could share that with them. But I shouldn't feel like I had anybody to share it with. 
So I, I went through some stuff, but I would also say that, like, look, um, my mom and dad did everything in their power to create the best opportunities for me in my life. And unwittingly, they probably created this sense of entitlement. And I don't blame stealing credit cards on being depressed. Uh, I blame stealing credit cards on being entitled and thinking I get get away with it. And I didn't. And it's weird because, you know, it's it's always interesting to me when people bring it up, you know, it was in 1996. And what initially happened was I had come home and my dad asked me if I wanted to go back. And I said, not really. And this is without the credit card thing. Mm-hmm. And we start talking about what we could do, where we go, and all this other stuff, because that's what every college basketball player does. And um, John, we, John McLeod called, and he said, hey, I heard you've been talking about leaving. We really, really need to know if you're coming back. And I said, well, Coach, I don't know. You know, I know it's my freshman year, blah, blah, blah. So um, um, he said, well, I'll call you back in a week. And I, I got to know yes or no if you're coming back. I said, okay, that's fair. So he called back like three days later. And he said, you know, he's heard some things about credit cards. And a guy came to see him from a mall. And there's some video out there or whatever. And he, so he's talking, he was on the phone with me and my dad. And so we hung up. My dad asked if I did it. And I said, yeah. And he said, well, what are you going to do? And I said, well, I think I got to go and face the music. And so he said, well, let's call Coach McLeod back and talk to him about it. So we called him back, and Coach said, well, I don't know. This might be out of my hands. What you need to do is, if you want to come back to school here, you've got to call those three kids and get them to not charge us through the student board. So I called all three of them, and, and they were like, and I was like, listen, I'll pay you restitution. I'll do whatever it takes. You know, I feel terrible about this. I violated your trust. Um, and one of them was like, nah, I'm not into it. You know, you stole my credit card. You ran out the bill. My mom accused me of putting shit on, you know, putting these pair of Nikes on the bill. And I didn't know what I, she called me a liar for a while. And, you know, then finally we came to find out it was you. Like, no, thanks. And so I was kind of like left with a, damn, do I go and face the student review board or do I, you know, transfer? And so Coach McLeod called me and he said, hey, uh, here's the deal. You know, you can't come back. Um, it's out of my hands. And what we're going to say is <clears throat> you're going to pay them restitution, which is like two and a half times whatever you charge. And we're going to say that you were homesick and they're going to transfer to be close to home. We won't say anything. You won't say anything. You know, we don't want to hurt your chances of going to a good, good school. And so that was that. And, um, you know, obviously my dad was, was very, very upset with me. Mom was upset with me. I felt like shit. And, uh, then the first day of school, the next year, it's early August. In the student newspaper, I'd become, you know, a popular player, and I was, you know, had a good freshman year. And uh, in the back of the paper was this, like, you know, what's the matter with Notre Dame basketball that the starting point guard leaves to be closer to home? Like, will they ever be any good? And it was just that I want – and all it said was I left because I was homesick. 
<clears throat> and so the three kids, like, you know, the, one of the guys who was, who, you know, wouldn't accept my apology. Mm-hmm. He got them, he got the others together and said, Hey, this is bullshit. Like he's just getting away with this. Like there's no punishment at all. So they went to the NBC station and, um, and the NBC and went on camera and said, here's what really happened. So, uh, I don't know if Notre Dame was really protecting me or protecting their image or whatever. I don't know. I can tell you that in a crazy way, people ask me about it now. And I'm like, look, Oklahoma state was the best experience in the world for me. I didn't win national championship. I didn't shoot the ball nearly as well as I wanted. We didn't win a big 12, but I met my wife there. I'm on the board of governors there. Shit. I nearly got the head coaching job there. Um, that place is, it, it's, it was the best possible thing out of the worst possible thing, which is kind of what the story of life. Right. Yeah. And so I don't, so, you know, when people tweet me about it, it just, one, it comes across as so uneducated Two, you know, it's like, I, I hate that we live in the type of society that we're like, all right, what's your lowest moment? All right, let's bring it up 20 years later and, and see just, just for our own self-fulfillment, self-joy. Like, that was a really dark time, man. I remember it came out, you know, when it, when it came out at, in South Bend, it was in the front page of USA Today. It was on ESPN. It was on in Sports Illustrated. And I was I was at Golden West College. And what I was doing was I was practicing with the basketball team. I was like their assistant coach and I practice. And then I wouldn't play in the game. So I saved my year of eligibility. And it was my high school coach, my freshman year, Tom McCluskey. He played at Penn State. And so... Like none of these people knew me. I was Orange County Player of the Year. I was all state. I was all everything, all American. And here I was at this no-name junior college in Huntington Beach, and I was just going to you know get a workout and hang out with the other athletes every day at this little food court area. And all of a sudden, you know, everybody looks in the paper, and there's you know Gottlieb, you know, uh, theft, credit cards, possible felony, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I I guess I get that somehow people think that's like the story, but I don't know. That's, that's the story of getting down. Like what about the story of getting back up? Exactly. And I, you know, it's, it's a great life lesson for those of us who are journalists or journalists. I'm like more of a journalist than a journalist. Like careful to carry the story, careful to just focus on when somebody, you know, falls, it's what do they, do they dust themselves up or do they go and fuck up again? And for me, you know, I've had to wear the scarlet letter and I'm fine with it. I'm a big boy. And at some point I got to tell my kids about it. But in the meantime, like, does that really make you feel better to point out that I stole credit cards in 1996 at Notre Dame? If so, brother, you got a sad life if that's what, that's what turns you on. It, it seems like so many people want to focus on that as though that's somehow, you know, the sole indictment on your character when, when really... If we go back and look at people, I mean, you know, my freshman year of college, I there were so many people around me making so many dumb mistakes that if if they were still brought up at this point and we're the same age, um, you know. Yeah, they, I mean, first, like, look, I also get the benefit, though, Stank, of of who I am and what I've been able to accomplish. So I, I get it. I'm. Uh, it doesn't. It's just you know, like credit cards. Really, is that the best you could do? Like, I don't right. know what the statute limitations are on stupid, arrogant, uh, moronic, sophomore behavior. But I, I would think that 20 years 
we it's expired. That that would be my thing, you know. So let me ask you this: so so you're at Golden West College, um, which again, another part of your life. I think people don't think about they they somehow just remember it as though you left Notre Dame and were immediately at Oklahoma State. But you're spending that year, and then obviously other schools are starting to call. Um, I know that there was something involving uh, Baron Davis at UCLA. There was a chance you could go back to UCLA. Um, I, I remember yeah, so reading. I want to go back to I want to go to UCLA or Georgia Tech, and both were Baron's last three schools were Georgia Tech, UCLA, and Kansas, and all thought they were getting. <laughs> and uh, like, look, my dad would take Baron Davis ahead of me yeah. <laughs> out of high school. Like, come on, man. Baron Davis was awesome. Like people forget how good Baron Davis was before he tore his ACL, and even after he tore his ACL, he was really good. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah. So that was that was the what happened at UCLA, Georgia Tech. Bobby Kremins thought he might get fired. Um, they hadn't yet got Deion Glover. Matt Harpering was thinking about going pro, and he's like, "Look, if Harpering comes back and Deion Glover commits, we could be really good if you came here. If they don't, I get my ass fired." Well. They both came back, but uh, somebody, somebody in administration at Georgia Tech had either come from Notre Dame or had called Notre Dame, and he couldn't take me, so I didn't go to Georgia. That was the only place that said we can't take you. I was wondering. Um, that's I really, was, yeah, I was. Just, I just want to ask you though, Doug. At, at, so at that time, uh, I was going to ask about the influence that that had over you know the coaches because basketball community, as we know, is small. So. I mean, word travels. Yeah. I mean, that was one of those times, like, like having my dad probably hurt me on some level with some of these coaches because they thought he'd be a pain in the ass, you know, because he's a coach, he might know too much or whatever. Uh, But in that particular case, having my dad probably helped me because they knew my dad wouldn't put up with that nonsense anymore, you know, and that pretty good chance it was a one and done incident and, uh, you know, I'd, I'd gone through counseling and like legit counseling and tried to kind of search deeper than my soul. So the only school that at least told me that they'd offer me a scholarship and then pulled back was Georgia Tech at the last second. And Bobby's known my dad forever. And, you know, Georgia Tech's point guard you. And they right. kind of quietly like, yeah, we don't know. We don't think we can do this. So Oklahoma State then enters the picture, and it's funny because you, the way you describe Notre Dame and and you hit the uh, you know the winter months, and it, it was funny because during your description, I mean, I went to Ithaca College, my brother went to Syracuse, so I know what those gray winters are like. I remember season on the brink describes them perfectly, the, those Indiana winters and how depressing they can be. Stillwater is not a place that a lot of people think of for a Southern California kid that will enjoy the 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 social aspect. Um, Although yeah. I think you could probably tell me otherwise, because I know you, how much you loved your time at Oklahoma State. So, so how do you end up there? Um, so at the start of that year that I was sitting out, I don't know. My dad called Sean Sutton, or Sean called my dad, because Sean had sat out after Coach got fired at Kentucky and nearly went to Purdue. And so we just called him and said, "Hey, you know, what'd you do during your year off? Got some advice." And they were like look, we like Doug, but we have two freshman point guards, two freshman combo guards. We're going to try to make points. In it. So I visited uh, Alabama, visited Oregon, visited Marquette. Uh, where the hell else did I visit? I visited a bunch of places. Those are officials. 
I was going to visit Utah, and then Andre Miller got next year eligibility. Um, and so uh, at the end of it, I um, – so Oklahoma State called me mid-year and like, hey, Sean was like, hey, how are those workouts going? I was like, great. He had me using something called the big ball, which is like, you know, two times the size of a basketball for workouts. Yeah. Good advice. Yep. So why don't you watch this play tonight against Oklahoma? I watched them, and they won at the buzzer crazy game but you couldn't really tell the atmosphere because they used to have this camera like basically on the roof because it's such a small gym right and so he called me next day and he's like do you think we have a point guard and i was like no i actually think you don't have a point guard at all i think you kind of won because of keontae roberts and so he said yeah we our two combo guards joe atkins and Stell laster are really good players just not point guards would you want to take a visit and i said uh yeah and actually miles had almost gone to oklahoma state he Paul George, Paul Graham had recruited the hell out of him, so he had almost gone there. And so uh, I decided to take a visit, and, you know, I went back-to-back visits there in Oregon. And it was kind of a leap of faith. I mean, two things. One, it's a total college town. I mean, it's a hell of a good time, man. I just – you want to go to a great college town, that's the place. Um, and I just – I love the idea that it was a college town. I love the idea that it was a basketball gym you know, and then it was a basketball school and you're playing for a basketball legend. And then I watched them practice and warm up and play Texas A&M and they weren't very good and they didn't play very fast. Um, but I could tell, like, if you moved everybody over position, like, they had some really good athletes and they had potential. And I just, I don't know, I felt like I, I saw it. I saw what other people might be missing. And so I was like, you know what, I, that's where I want to go. And my dad totally supported it. And um, and that's where I went. And um, you know, we moved. Desmond moved. Desmond Mason moved over to the four. Adrian Peterson moved to the three. Um, and Joe Atkins moved to the two. And Brett Robish was a redshirt senior center, and he was awesome. He was kind of he face up. He's going to post, and we were picked last in the Big Twelve, and we end up winning the Big Twelve South. So we uh, kind of the rest was downhill from there. It's it's so funny that once again your vision, you know, different uh, definition of the term, but your vision turns out to to be uh, this great thing in in determining your your future there. Um, so you you lead the Big Twelve in assists that ninety seven ninety eight year. The next year you lead the country in assists eight point eight a game. Uh, you guys yeah, only twenty six cents a game too. It's, it's remarkable, and then. 99-2000 season, 8.6 assists per game. You lead the country in total assists. You guys win 27 games. And uh, I just went back and watched the tape of your Sweet 16 game, the regional semis against Seton Hall. Shaheen Holloway sits out the game, and, and yeah. you're playing there. Uh, what, are your, what are your memories from, from that night? Um, here's how smart a team we had. Okay, we ran, the same, we ran a play in the second half called Cyclone. We stole from Iowa State my sophomore year. We hadn't run it even once our senior year. Uh, we called it on the floor and ran it like three times, scored all three times on it. I called this inbounds play we hadn't run all year that we'd run the previous year. We ran it three or four times, scored almost every time on it. We had such a smart team that we could go like, hey, remember that thing we did like 35 games ago? Let's do that. And everybody's like, okay, yeah, let's just do it. Um, I just, you know, those guys – I don't, I, we were probably, we were probably the best team in the country when we just played. Um, you know, we lost to Iowa State, got blown out of their place. 
and lost in a close game at ours at uh, in the Big 12 tournament. We never played them at our place. We smashed people at our place our senior year. We didn't play well, and we had – I was a little sick. Brian Montanati was sick, and, and Florida was super, super talented. But I didn't think our game plan was great. You know, the, that team, we scored a lot of points, and we did most everything out of transition, our secondary break. One, because I was obviously a really good passer. Two, because we had very good talent. And three, it was just very simple. We ran all of North Carolina's secondary breaks. We changed them on the fly. Everybody knew their assignment. And, you know, whoever you'd help off of, that's who would get the ball. And um, because Florida pressed, and because we only had a day to prep, and we thought we were going to play Duke, I think Coach kind of freaked out a little bit. And he took us out of our secondary break and had me inbounding the ball against the press yeah. you know, the entire first half. And that, that took us out of our transition game, which is where we scored. And I thought Billy did a really good job of hopping into a matchup zone. What happened with that? This is a weird story. So Florida that year was really talented. When you look, they had like eight guys that played in the NBA. Um, and, you know, we had one, Desmond Mason. We had all our guys played in Europe. We were, we were good. We were old. I was 24. Brian Montanati was 23. Joe Atkins was 22. Like, we had old men. Um, but in the middle of the year, Florida was really struggling to get their guys to guard. And so uh, John Pelfrey, who played for Coach Kentucky, actually came and watched our practices for like two days and took notes on our defensive drills, on some of the other things we did. And, <laughs> I mean, I don't know if he used it, but shit, he knew everything about us. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, so we got we we got down big in the first half um, in the Elite Eight. But what I remember about the Sweet 16 was, I remember that we, we ran Cyclone several times it worked. Um, I remember I shot a horrific brick uh, at the free throw line. So I wasn't the guy. We should have won that game by like 10 points going away. Um, but the only reason we didn't was because the other guys – Missed the free throws. Montanati missed free throws. They hit a three at the buzzer, so I think we won by two or one or two. But it was really like a four or five point win. And uh, the other thing I remember is Tommy Amaker played kind of a weird zone where he played two guys in zone and three guys in man. And we had, as you know, we knew that uh, Ty Shine was going to start at point. He wasn't as good as Shaheen. But we knew they were going to go to that zone, so we put in a couple things that week. And every time they went to it, we scored against it. So, I don't know, that's my – and I remember, obviously, the Carrier Dome, and then I remember going home that night, um, and we all made a pact that if we won against Florida, we were going to get married to our current girlfriends because the NCAA will pay for your wife to go to one game per year. <laughs> and so we're all like, hey, we're getting married to these girls anyway. Like, let's all go down to the courthouse and get married. Oh, that would have been remarkable. Great story, oh, right? And, and Grant Wall followed me around for like two days. I would have been on the cover of Sports Illustrated, and then we, we took a dump against Florida and got beat. That year, I think Cincinnati was the best team, right? That Was was that Kenny Martin's team? Like, Cincinnati was the best team. He got hurt. And then it was us, Iowa State, Florida. Tulsa was really good. We wanted to play them in the semis. And they lost to Carolina, and we lost to Florida. We Coach wouldn't play them. And Michigan State was really good, and they won the national title. It must have been strange for you. You you beat a uh, a Big East team in the Sweet Sixteen, which is kind of ironic considering that you started out in the Big East. And then Florida was a school that you could have ended up at, and uh, that's who you play for the for the Elite Eight. I don't know if you've thought yeah. about that. Yeah, since, I, but... I actually didn't. 
I did. I mean, look, I always wanted to go to Duke, and what happened was, um, I remember I was at ABC camp, and Mike Krzyzewski watched one of our games, and he's like, hey, I would recruit you, but I have a Polish point guard who's a year ahead of you, so I'm not going to recruit you. So, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, Billy Donovan was at Florida, so it was totally different. Uh, but yeah, Tom Izzo, I mean, I mean, I'd probably be a, either his assistant or be a head coach somewhere if I'd taken that job. So, so it's random how it works out, you know? So two questions about your, your time at Oklahoma State is, first of all, um, I think just your chemistry with Desmond Mason is what people fondly remember and, and the alley-oops and, and just how you guys were in sync so well. Where do you think that came from? I don't know because, um, like we're still, we were, we've always, we were roommates when I first got there. Um, and we have obviously totally different backgrounds. Um, I don't know. I just, he, we were just, I was just an eye contact guy and he just, like, I could tell, I just, I remember watching him warm up and like, who the fuck is this guy? He's warm. <laughs> I was, I was on a recruiting visit and I'm watching this guy warm up and he's doing like through the legs dunks. And then you'd watch him in a game and he sucked. What in the hell? Like, and coach is like, well, we want to play him at the four, and he's fighting us on it. Like, we think we have a point guard. And, like, you know, he's just one of those guys to where if you got him a dunk early in the game, he, he'd play out of his mind. And so, I don't know, you just threw it up, and you made eye contact with him, and you throw it up near the rim. And it was weird because I couldn't make a shot, but if in a split second I could throw it right to the spot I wanted to throw to, and he would, you know, hit perfect timing for him to dunk it. So, I don't know, we just uh, – he had great hands. I mean, I still think he could be a – uh, Hall of Fame wide receiver, and really, I mean, uh, we had good timing, good chemistry, and that dude could run full speed and jump through the roof. The other question about about your time at Oklahoma State is that you really struggled shooting the ball, and obviously, that's not news to you or or anyone who watched you play. I thought that that actually made your assist numbers and what you were able to do in terms of your passing even more impressive. Because it's not yeah. like guys were playing no, up on you. Like I mean, I, yeah, I, I remember guys. I remember teams playing against you that would play zones where the guys on top of the zone were playing at the free throw line, and and yeah. you still were able to to thread the needle uh, and make these unbelievable passes. But um, you're shooting during that time because I've played with you <laughs> since then, and I think people are always shocked when I tell them that no, Doug actually can shoot the ball. Like you'd be shocked at a his form and B, his confidence shooting the ball. So was it was it strictly mental for you? Um, I think it was a little physical. I mean, I really got big. Um, I, You know, what happened when I got there was I got a key to the gym in the weight room, and I just – late at night I'd go, and I'd just go and <laughs> kill it in the weight room and then go get some shots up. Um, and then, you know, I, my just confidence would dip when I, I – I'm kind of a pleaser as a person. Like I, you asked about when I was playing in high school, I've always wanted to please my teammates make them want to play with me. And, you know, early in practice at Oklahoma State, I remember just always delivering passes perfectly. And then you get you get to where it's a habit, and then you're in a game, and when there's no scouting report on you, you can, you know, like we played at North Texas, like my third game, I had like 13 assists. We were going crazy. But, you know, in hindsight, I should have gone and gotten, you know, 15 and 14 or whatever. But I just didn't. And then, you know, it gets to a point where it's a habit to not shoot, and people dare you to shoot. And, you know, you start to think you can't, you miss a couple, your coach takes you out and just kind of snowballs. And it was like an every year thing. So I wish I had a better explanation, but I'd say some of it was, say it was 15% physical, but the rest of it was mental. All right, so you finish up your career at Oklahoma State, and at that time, are you thinking I might actually be playing in the NBA? 
Uh, I thought there was a, a good chance. I mean, I don't know. I don't know how realistic it was. I just, you know, I, I mean, I was realistic that it was going to take somebody who uh, understood me as a basketball player and understood my value. But you know, thirty teams all takes is one, right? So um, yep. I thought I had, I thought I had a chance. I mean, I thought I had to redo up my compass and my shooting just so you couldn't be a, a guy that guys wouldn't guard. But I mean, like you know, Avery Johnson fought and scrapped. He couldn't shoot at all, and he made it to the league. I just thought, you know, you get a, somebody that believes in you, understands you can really make people better, and I could defend my position. Um, I'd have a shot. But um, you know, I just thought when I finished. There was one of three avenues, and I thought I could. I I thought I could play, and my vision was I can't make the NBA. What if I played in a different country every year and learned a different language every year and traveled the world with uh, the woman who's now my wife? Um, if not that, could I um, uh, could I coach? And if not that, broadcast. Well, one of those three things would be the, you know. USBL was awesome because there was a lot of guys who had been drafted or had played in the NBA. We had Willie Burton and Bubba Wells, and uh, we had a bunch of guys that that were that were really really close. Um, and it was you know two month league NBA style rules, NBA length games. So you really got to learn what it was like to be a pro in terms of taking care of your body, and in terms of the style of play. You know, just it's a different different game, different deal. Um, so I used that. And when I came back from Russia, I played the Lakers in their summer league. I had been in their free agent camp the year before and got beat out by Mike Pemberthy. And then with the summer league, it was me, Mike Pemberthy and, uh, Joe Crispin. And, you know, I mean, like to this day, I think I was the best point guard, but Joe was Joe and, and Mike were so much better shooters than I were. They were great shooters that it didn't, didn't really matter. And they actually ended up keep, keeping both. And then, I think they end up cutting them both somewhere during the next year or whatever. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a great experience. Um, you know, I, I think had I, I wish I would have gotten a couple more minutes. And I think the other thing was, you know, so much of getting, getting an opportunity is about one, having somebody believe in you, but two, you're having kind of an in and my dad had coached with Tex, and I thought Tex and the Lakers guys gave me a great opportunity, but it's not really my style of, like I was not a triangle point guard at all. So it was kind of right. square peg round right. hole in it, you know? So even though like transition, I would dominate. And I, by the second year running triangle, I really knew it and knew <clears throat> how to hide what I couldn't do. Um, there's still some limitations there when you're playing without the ball so much and you're kind of a ball dominant guard. So I, I think there's a little bit of bad luck in uh, being with them. And then I actually was with the Timberwolves but I got cut right before the summer league tryouts. They had Igor Radovich, who they really wanted to, he was on the team and they wanted to develop. Um, actually, Joe Crispin was in that, in that camp as well. And that was a much better, that was a much better style for me. I had a much better chance of making it there, but that was after a year of broadcasting. And I went and played in France for a month and a half. And I was in good shape, but I wasn't, and I was really kind of a pro by then, meaning I could, just do what I needed to do and be really efficient. But I wasn't, when I was with the Lakers and was in Israel and Russia, I was like at the peak of my athleticism and I was, you know, like 3% body fat. And uh, I, I can't swear that I was in the perfect tip top shape with the Timberwolves thing, but you know, I got enough opportunities. You finish playing collegiately, then you finish playing professionally. And there's a story that uh, your former assistant coach, Sean Sutton 
like to tell about how when he was recruiting you, you would talk so much on the phone that actually one time you were talking, he set the phone down, left the room to get a Coke, came back, picked up the phone, and you were still talking. And that's when he was recruiting you. So it it, it was a given that you were going to uh, have a chance to go into broadcasting. And you started out with uh, co-hosting a midday sports talk show on this Oklahoma City radio station, um, an AM sort of. station. I mean, actually... Oh, go ahead. Um, well, okay, so when I was in college... Um, I I grew up in Orange County, obviously, in Southern California, and Jim Rome was just making it big nationally. When I was early in high school, he was on late at night on XCRA in San Diego. And I was, uh, my dad loved the XCRA in the afternoon, this guy, Lee Hamilton. So I'd listen to that with him, and then the station still be on, and late at night, you know, I'd I'd drop my friends off at home, be driving home, I'd be listening to Jim Rome do some, you know, remote from a bar or something like that. And so... Uh, when I got to Oklahoma State, and my first year we were 13-0 and to start the season. And uh, Will Hancock, who died in the plane crash, was our SID. And Will was like, well, there's a lot of media requests for you. What do you want to do? And I was like, I've always wanted to do the Jim Rome show. And then we lost to Nebraska and Tyron Lue. And so um, I was, we had to put down the back burner. And at some point I got banned from the media for saying something. I don't remember what it was. But I used to do, I did Jim Rome show several times, and then I would do a show called Todd Wright All Night on ESPN Radio. And I became both shows like college basketball correspondent throughout my playing career. And then when I was a senior, my last year at playing the Big 12 tournament, we played the early game against Kansas. And we were like the, I'm going to say the four seed, and they were the five seed. Maybe maybe we were a three seed and they were a six. I don't remember. They had to play the day before. So they give you like a shooting time of like seven in the morning because you, your games are like noon or one o'clock. And coach comes to us and says, any of you guys want to go shoot in the morning? You can. And like nobody volunteered, but I wanted to. So it was me, Will Hancock, Pat Noyes, like all the guys that died in the plane crash actually. Um Brian Lewinstra also died in the plane crash. He was he was our basketball trainer. Jared Weiberg, he died in the plane crash. Uh, honestly, it was the four, four of the guys that died in the plane crash. And me, we went to Emperor. And we were going to use our hour practice time, and they were just going to feed me, and you know I'd get my shots up and work out a little bit, and then we were just going to mess around. And so while I was shooting, and I was shooting free throws, Tim Allen came out to me. He's director of communications for the Big 12. And he gave me his card, and he said, hey, man, you'd be great. We'd love for you to represent the conference on television whenever you're done playing. And I kept the card. And uh, when I was my first year out, I was we got married in August, and we were supposed to go to Italy. And I was going to play on a team that trained in Italy and played in St. Petersburg, Russia. My agent had put together this team. It was going to be a team wouldn't make it to the second round, and then everybody would go to like different teams. It's kind of a screw, kind of a crazy deal. It's a weird year in Europe, and so I go to Chicago with my now bride after getting married because that's where my agent's located. And we go to a Cubs game. That's when Sammy was Sammy Sosa was big. We go spend a couple of great nights in Chicago. We go have dinner with my agent, and he goes, "Oh, hey, I got good news for you. You can go on a honeymoon now because." Training camp's been pushed back like two weeks because of the Olympics. 
I was like, what do you mean? Like, I can't plan a honeymoon now. I have no money. <laughs> and he's, oh, and I got some bad news. You can't bring your wife with you to training camp. So um, we go back to Oklahoma, and that was the one week of my life that I did manual labor. I built a, a retaining wall in the middle of the day to earn some money. And I worked out in the morning and then played ball at night and did the business retaining wall. I was like, it was like 110 degrees. I was like, I'm never having a real job in my life. I like made it, made it to myself. So um, anyway, that team, I didn't get my Israeli passport. got screwy. And I was playing as Israeli. I couldn't get my passport. Then I go to the CBA. And my USBL coach is assistant the CBA. I beat out 13 other point guards, make the team, only to get cut the day before the first game because Randy Livingston got cut in the NBA and he took my spot. So I'm back in Oklahoma. And I start taking fill-in spots in Oklahoma City. And I would get paid 100 a show, I think. And then I would get paid like $200 for a remote. You know, if you do a Jim's Lawn Care, you know, or Byford Auto Group, you know, you do a radio show from yeah. there. Yeah. So I would do, you know, you just try to make ends meet. We had $600 a month rent in a brand new apartment. My wife started, my wife had to like graduate like a 4.0. She's like working as a waitress because we're, we know we're going to go overseas at some point. And I picked up that car and I called Tim at the big 12 office. He put me in touch with Pete Durzis at ESPN regional. And Pete's like, Hey, why don't you try calling a couple of these games for ESPN plus that, which became, you know, it's ESPN regional. You said ESPN plus, which became ESPN you, you know? Mm-hmm. So I did a couple of games. I did a TCU Butler game it was my first game ever. And then I did TCU Texas Tech in Fort Worth. And while I was at the game, my wife had left a message at the hotel for me. I needed to call some guy in Iowa. So I called this guy in Iowa uh, from my room. And he's like, hey, um, I'm the head coach of the Salina Rattlers of the IBA. And I was like, what the hell is the IBA? They're like, well, you know, it's a little bit below the CBA. And this is the, my first year out, everything was screwy because Europe had changed their rules. The D-League at first came to existence. The CBA was floundering. There's the ABA, but nobody got paid in the ABA. And there's this IBA, which were some ex-CBA teams, some just made up teams. And they didn't pay much money, but at least they paid their money. So I'm like, you know what? I'm thinking I want to play. I just want to keep playing. So I called my agent, and he's like, I think I have a couple of deals for you, but you should probably go play and get in shape. So Pete Durzis, like wanted to give me a bunch of games, and I was like, you know what, Pete, I, I just I went and had a drink with him in his room, and I said, I, I really want to keep playing, but I'll tell you what, the second I'm done playing, I'm going to call you, and once I decide I want to work, I just want to work. He said, okay. So I flew to Iowa, to Des Moines, Iowa the next day, played back-to-back nights against the Iowa Barnstormers, and then we bust overnight to Salina, played like six more games in seven nights, and then at some point I got the call that I was going to Russia for this Russian team, you're all great, and I left. And so um, there was a guy named Mike Moore who did all the scheduling at ERT, ESPN Regional, and he worked under Pete Dursis. And so after two years of playing overseas, this is Russia one year and then Israel the next year, with all the summer league stuff, um, I got an inter. I, I was filling in at the radio station, 
and a buddy of mine named Brandon Cristal, who has this unique ability. I don't know if you know anybody like this, Danko, but he's, I call him the weasel, because there's not a backstage that he can't get into. There's not a VIP room that he's not a part of. And he, he just, he's, it's magical. I don't know how he does it. Every place I've ever been in sports that has a backstage, he's there before me. And like, it's crazy. So he calls me from the X Games. He's in between jobs himself. And we've been friends since that junior college when I was at, at uh, Golden West Junior College. My one journalism course, I wrote for the student newspaper. I wrote, I did uh, food, I did uh, restaurant reviews because I would get reimbursed. So I'd go eat at lunch at a place and get reimbursed. That's why I did it. And um, and he did like sports. And then he went to Kansas and occasionally he'd stop at school at Oklahoma State and sleep on my floor or something like that. So Brandon calls me. He's like, hey, I just ran this guy's dance tier. He said he's been trying to call you at the radio station, but you don't have a voicemail. You don't have a cell phone. Um, he wants to audition you for college basketball. I was like, no way. So he's like, hold on. He puts him on the phone. We talk. He flies me up. I do an audition. He offers me eight games. And so then I go back to my the guy I'd been filling in for in Oklahoma City. I was like, hey, listen, I got this opportunity to work for ESPN. But I think I was making, I'm going to say it was, I can't remember, it was 1250 a game or 1800 a game. One of the two. I think it was 1800 a game. It's like 1800 a game, 12 games, you do the math. Or eight games. Um, you do the math. It's not very much money. Right. And so I said, so I said to my radio boss, like, look, this is what I can make overseas. This is what I can make from ESPN. Can you match, can you fill in the gap and, and, you know, make me whole? If I can, like, I'll stay and work for you. And he's like, yep, I can do that. So <laughs> I started this midday radio show and I did games for ESPN Regional. And then at the end of that season, I went back, I I got done calling, like, Tulsa won the WAC championship at the Reynolds Center. And I was driving back, we bought a house in Oklahoma City, I was driving back, and my basketball agent called and said, hey, if you leave today, I got a job for you in Port- Portugal, and the team will probably make the playoffs, and if you make the playoffs, you get, like, a 10 grand bonus. Win the championship, you get another 10 grand. You know, that's pretty good money. It's like, but you have to leave today. And I was like, what's option B? And he goes, well, it's in Clermont-Ferrand, France. You fill in for a guy for a month and a half. You get two months' salary, um, and they're trying to advance to first division. And you know, but they're probably not going to make the only if, if they make second division playoffs. They might keep you. They might not. So I, I just thought, you know, this radio guy had been so good to me. It was on a Saturday or Sunday. I couldn't call him on a Sunday and go, "Hey, I'm getting on a flight. Fill in for me on Monday." You know. Right. So I went and saw him on Monday, and I was like, I still got this in my system. And he's like, just go, and you always have your job. We'll just say you're playing basketball, and you have your job when you get back. So I went, and I played in France. It was awesome. Um, I got thrown out of my last game with 14 seconds to go, so I'm still suspended for six games in France if I go back. <laughs> and uh, my wife came over. We spent like three days in Paris, spent some of the money, and she made me buy some Armani jeans, which I've worn twice in my life. And... Um, we we came back and I called Dan Steer back up and I said, Hey man, I just got done playing against the DL brothers. Um, I would love to do the NBA draft because this is the first year ESPN had gotten the NBA draft. 
on TV. It always been on, been on Turner. And I said, look, um, this is the year with Darko. I said, I played against Darko two years ago in Israel. I played him twice. I played against Kirilenko. I went through all the foreign guys, and I was like, plus, I work for you. I did college basketball, and my dad's an AU guy. Like, I know all the high school guys. I was like, I would love to do the draft. He's like, that sounds great, but I can't use you. But radio might be able to use you. So I'm going to call radio and see if I can get you a spot there. So I don't hear from anybody for, I don't know, like four or three, four weeks or something like that. And now we're getting, like, really close to the draft. Meanwhile, I'm back in my role at uh, at WWLS in Oklahoma City. Um, I had done, that's when I did the Timberwolves thing, come back from that. And now I'm pretty close to being done, but I still had, because I played really well in France, I had an offer to go back in France if I wanted, a couple other countries, back to Israel. So I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. So I get a call from the people, the Todd Wright All Night producer, her name is Louise Cornetta, and Keith Garowski was above her. They both call me. And they're like, hey, are you doing the draft for us? I was like, I don't know. I haven't heard from anybody. They're like, well, we're thinking about making a change with one of our daily shows. If you can get on radio, you might have a shot here. I was like, well, well, you know, how am I supposed to make this happen? Like, I don't like, well, the guy's name is Chief. Everybody calls him Chief. And um, he's producing the NBA broadcast right now. I, like, I, do you live near an NBA city? I was like, no, I live in Oklahoma <laughs> City. So uh, they're like, well, figure out a way to get a hold of that guy. He's the gatekeeper to all remote for ESPN Radio. So, um, and this is a really weird story. So I get a call from my basketball agent, and a guy named Michael Siegel. And Michael's like, do you want to do a movie? And I was like, <laughs> yeah. He goes, okay, so Spike Lee's brother is making a movie. I'm going to send you the script. They need a cocky white basketball player. I was like, that I can play. <laughs> so uh, I go, he's like, but you have to audition. I was like, okay, how do I audition? Like, well, it's in New York. I was like, that's funny. The NBA finals are in New York. I got to get and see this guy, John something or other, who they everybody calls chief. And so he's like, okay. With two birds, one stone, I'll get them to pay to fly you up, read these lines. So I go up. I'm super nervous. I've never read lines for something. So I read the line. I spent like a half a day auditioning for some movie that never got made. And then I go to game, I think it was five of the NBA Finals. This is 2002, Spurs versus Nets. It was the game which, and I don't know if you remember, Steve Kerr didn't play in the first half, came off the bench at the end of the third quarter, replaced Tony Parker, and hit three big threes. And the Spurs won, end up winning the series. So I go down after the game, and there's this guy with a big mustache. And I was like, are you chief? He goes, yeah, I am. I go, my name is Doug Gottlieb. He goes, oh, yeah, yeah, I've been meaning to get to you. Uh, do you want to do the draft next week? <laughs> I was next like, week. sure. How does that work? He goes, um, here's my card. Call me this week. I'll put you in touch with travel. They'll fly you up. So, um, I go back home. I'm like, okay, I guess I'm doing the NBA draft. So I fly up, and we are meeting at the, I'm going to say the Marriott Marquis in like a boardroom. And it's me, um, Jim Durham, who, of course, passed away, Kevin Lockery, 
and Fred Carter, chief, and a couple of his radio engineers. And um, you know the videos that they show, highlight videos for all these players? Sure. Like That was all they knew. Uh, that was like, they wanted to like break down tape of like 30, hi- 30 seconds of highlights. Like Fred Carter's like, oh, he's really athletic, you know? <laughs> and I mean, they're both hilarious and they both totally know the NBA, but they had no idea about any of these players. So I had had a week, and I knew all these players. And so for all the foreign players, I called agents and play, guys that I played with overseas. Like, hey, did you play against this guy? What's he like? Whatever. So this is before, like, I didn't even know if I – I think the Internet existed, right, in 2002, but I didn't know really how to use it. <laughs> and um, and then, you know, I called these college coaches, talked to all the guys I knew who called college games, talked to my dad, my brother, and all the AU guys, but the high school guys. And so, you know, it's LeBron, and I knew Chris Bosch because Bosch had, uh, he grew up in Dallas and he used to come up to our games. Um, I think Joe Johnson was that year. He used to come up to our games, too. Everybody knew LeBron. I didn't watch any of that NCAA tournament because I was playing in France, but I mean, I knew enough about Carmelo. But they all had opinions about Carmelo because they'd watch the tournament. So we go to the draft the next day, and I have this big notebook, and they each have like two sheets of paper, and the two sheets of paper are empty draft. Like, when somebody gets drafted, they'd write in their name so they'd know. And then it was the complete team. It was the team stats for each team in the NBA, like field goal percentage, field goal percentage defense, free throw percentage, assist, turnover. Like, that's it. That was their that was their prep. And so the first, um, first three, four picks... So the first pick was LeBron. They all, everybody had an opinion on LeBron. And, and by the way, when they started the show, like, oh, it's Jim Durham, who's like an incredible host, incredible, iconic voice. Here with my old pal, Kevin Lockery, of course, Jordan's first coach, and Freddie Carter, and a newcomer, like Doug Gottlieb. And I was, I was kind of the third wheel, but it was, it was totally fine. They were completely gracious. So we get to Darko, and they kind of turn to me, like, can Darko play? And of course, I actually really thought Darko could play. And um, then they get to Carmelo. They had an opinion on Carmelo. They get to Dwayne Wade. He'd play in the Final Four. They had an opinion. They get to Chris Bosh, and they like they didn't really know much about Chris Bosh. And so I started kind of going into him. And after that, they were kind of into the interviews of the players, and I became kind of like personnel guy. And it was cool. I was like Mel Kiper Jr. Like, you know, I started doing right. basically a Mel Kiper Jr. invitation on each player. So I get home from doing it, and... um I get a note in the mail from Bruce Gilbert, who's the head of ESPN Radio, and he said, you know, I thought you were great. You really have, you know, you really have future in this business. Can you, do you know any other sport? And so I picked up the phone, I called him, and I said, uh, yeah, Mr. Gilbert, Doug Gottlieb, he's like, I know who you are. I said, well, I do Oklahoma, radio in Oklahoma, and we do three sports, football, spring football, and recruiting. And so he laughed, and I, he said, uh, and he's from Dallas. And he said, well, um, you have some fans up here, you know, do you want to come up and do an audition? I was like, sure. So I went from like begging for a game for games. And then I did a season of games and doing local radio. And then I came back from overseas and I asked to do the draft on TV. I ended up doing the draft on radio. And because of it, the head of radio heard me and I did an audition and then they wanted to hire me for game night. And that's what moved me to Bristol. That's unbelievable. Unbelievable. 
the thing is that so many people through the years know you as a guy who who has done radio, not just from the, the TV side. So it's funny because here you are thinking that it's, you know, maybe a TV, a color guy or something that you're going to be, which obviously you do that as well. But, uh, you know, your radio voice has become distinctive. Um, the There have been people in the basketball world, though, Doug, as we know, who've been upset with you. You alluded to it at the beginning of the podcast about the idea that, you know, depends if if you're a fan they they call you you know honest and candid and if they're not you know then then you're super opinionated and a loudmouth um but you know Roy Williams, Jim Beheim, Bo Ryan, Chris Webber throughout the years there've been people who who you've ruffled their feathers I've always appreciated it though since I watched you from when you first you know started at ESPN because I always felt like this is one of the guys who's truly honest when he is calling games or when he's describing things that happen in the basketball world. And I find that, and working with a lot of analysts through the years as I have, it's, it's, you know, it's very rare to find the guy who is not worried about what his next job is going to be, or if he's going to get a coaching gig again, or if he's going to upset some of his friends, because the, again, the basketball community is very small. And so it's hard for people, I think, to be that honest. So how much of it for you was just a conscious decision to say, I'm just going to be myself? Um, I think it's a good percentage of it. I mean, I'll, I'll be honest and tell you that when I first got to ESPN, I thought, what, what, what will my niche be? You know, how can I separate myself? Because I thought, you know, Jay Billis is really, really smart. And I want to be smart. I want to say stupid things. Uh, <laughs> but he's like really, really smart and well thought and thorough. Um, and he has opinions, but most of his opinions are like anti-NCA opinions more than anything, right? Um, and then, you know, Vital is a legend, but Vital has never had really a bad word to say about anybody except for the, the, the tie-up rule. You know, change that rule. Oh, I hate that rule, right? <laughs> so I'm like, you know, part of it is it does, it actually is me, my personality. Part of it is I thought there was a need for it in the sport. And, um, and part of it was that kind of once I became kind of that guy that there, I was put in situations where I, I take like my, the greatest pride I take was the hardest, kind of the hardest night or hardest week of, of my career, which was actually when coach Sutton had his DUI and mm-hmm. it happened on a Friday night. They were going to play Texas A&M, and um, I was on the set doing halftime for, I think it was like Big East basketball or something. And um, I got a call from my teammate, my, my, one of my centers in college, a guy named Alex Weber. So his, he massively overachieved. He married one of our trainers, Denise, and Denise is, I think now she's the president or vice president, or she's like, she's. She basically runs the hospital. I don't know what her actual title is. I don't know if she's CEO or she's VP or president or whatever. But at the time, she was one of the vice presidents, whatever, of the hospital, Stillwater Hospital. And she, and so Denise calls me and she's like, um, "Hey, coach was in an accident." And I was like, well, "What do you mean he was in an accident? Like he fell?" And and this was before he was you know, like now he's kind of frail and he's had other health issues. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "No, no, no." She's like, "He was in a car accident." I was like, "Is he alive?" She's like, "Yeah, but it's bad." I was like. 
well, like, is he going to walk again? She's like, no, no, not that kind of bad. I was like, what are you talking about? And she's like, it's bad. It's going to be bad. She's like, I can't, I'm not at liberty. I've seen the charge, but I can't say. I was like, she's like, you need to try and get out ahead of this and start calling those people because it's bad. And they're going to, you know, you, they, you know, they're going to be doing damage control and you've got to help advise them. I was like, okay, I don't really know what you're talking about. Like I was literally like just getting done with halftime and right. a, 40, a 405 number pops up on my cell phone and it's my friend's wife who, like, I'm friend, I'm we're friends, but like, I'm, I don't talk to her on the phone regularly. So, I text Sean Sutton, and he's like, "Yeah, coach is in a car accident." Um, that's about it. And then I text the other assistants, and like, everybody's on kind of lockdown. So I called Denise back. I'm like, "All right, what's the deal? Nobody's telling me anything." And so then it came across the wire that he was in a car accident, and he's in the hospital. She's like, "It's going to be bad." For coach, it's like, is he going to die? She's like, no, that's not the kind of bad. It's like, was he drinking? She's like, it's going to be bad. So <clears throat> then, at some point, there was a story about the smell of alcohol, whatever, and the the story that was kind of they kind of leaked out was like, oh, he's had back problems. He was he's probably taking pills. That's probably what it was. So I had been talking to Sean throughout the the next couple of days about. Um, Hey man, you got to figure out what's going on here. I got I can help you with how you handle this, but you got to tell me exactly what happened, exactly how bad it was. I can't advise you and I can't know what I'm going to say. And so they were, you know, Sean's a, Sean ended up struggling with his own demons, but he's the son of an alcoholic and as some of my friends advised me at the time like he didn't want to ask coach because he probably knew the answer, right? Mm-hmm. So I couldn't get a straight answer out of anybody. So that Monday night so Saturday, that's the story that he's in the hospital, a crash. No story about alcohol. Sunday, there's kind of rumors about alcohol. Monday, I fly to Vegas with my wife because I'm doing the San Diego State UNLV game. My brother works at San Diego State, um, and his wife's pregnant, my wife's pregnant, and we were going to get there. His his coach let him go early, and so we're all going to get there Monday and hang out in Vegas and try and decide what we're going to name our kids because my wife's pregnant with twins and and his wife's pregnant with a little boy. And so I get there and he's like, what's going on with Coach Sutton? And I was like, dude, I think he was, I think he was drinking, but I, you know, nobody will tell me. So the game is Wednesday night. Tuesday night is when they had their press conference that, and they announced that he had a point, like two, like a point two one or two three or something crazy. And he, you know, on speakerphone says that, you know, he's going to take some time away and blah, blah, blah. So I, they come to me on SportsCenter. And I'm like in some rinky-dink studio in Las Vegas. And six months before, I had been on SportsCenter. And Bob Huggins had gotten a DUI after a recruiting visit. I don't know if you remember that. It was the same year. Yeah, yeah. And I had said like, hey, you can't coach at a be the highest paid coaching uh, faculty member of university, representing the university. And get a DUI, like that's unacceptable. Like you can't coach there anymore. It's like part of the deal. So I felt like this was a great test of am I that guy that is straight up with and says the right says what's what everybody knows with everybody except my coach, or am I the guy who, hey, I gotta treat everybody the same, that's fair. And so I said, you know, I love Coach Sutton, but he always taught us about being accountable. And he's had problems with alcohol in the past. And so it's not like, hey, does he deserve a second chance? Sure. Another second chance? Sure. He just can't be the coach at Oklahoma State anymore. 
He has to have coached his last game. He had been at practice. He was going to the team plane, and he was in, badly inebriated. He nearly killed himself and nearly killed a lady. Like, you can't do that. That's you know, if it was any other coach, I would say the exact same thing. So I have to say that about my coach. And like, there was a good portion of the coaching staff that thought I was I was disloyal. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a good portion of the fan base that thought I was disloyal, and you know, I was cut off for a couple of years because of it. I knew I was right. I knew I had a history on my side. But so anyway, that was the moment to which I knew, like, this is the right way to do it. And I don't know. I take I take great pride in it. And the crazy thing about it, because I, I would agree with you that there are um, there have been coaches that have taken shots at me or whatever. <clears throat> and most of it has been above board. You know, most most of it hasn't been going personal or anything. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I was a candidate for this Oklahoma State job, especially this year, I mean, I was overwhelmed how many head coaches were coaching the NCAA tournament, sent me a text like, hey, man, if you need help, call me. We'll talk through this thing. Like, Mick Cronin's getting there ready for the NCAA tournament. Like, why are you helping me? He's like, dude, son of a coach. We're family. And, you know, I've I've gotten on a Mick before about, you know, when he goes crazy in the sideline or something like that. Um, you know, Mike White, I know a little bit, and I know his brother really well, and, like, totally good people. Like, Mike White sent me this email, like first hundred days, like, here's what you do when you become coach, like all this great stuff. And so I realized, I think, and I, I think I realized, I, I've known this whenever I've been around coaches that a lot of it's huff and bluster just for effect when they say they're mad at me, or maybe they're mad at the time, but they know that one, I'm probably right. And it's probably something that needs to be said and they have to be kind of defensive. And two, they also know that I treat kind of everybody that I don't really play favorites it only feels that way because so many other broadcasters in my position, like you said, have wanted to get the next head coaching job or want to go play in the golf tournament or just want to be the nice guy. And so um, anyway, I, I actually think I knew eventually it would even out. And I think it actually has. Yeah. I mean, I, I think everything you said is, is really poignant. I mean, I, I just remember you speaking critically about and fairly uh, about Coach Sutton, and I remember th- thinking at that time exactly the same things that okay, this guy's for real. Um, you know, again, he's he's going to talk about his program, something that's near and dear to him, the same way he would about everyone else. And I think that's one of the coolest uh, thing is what's that? About three years later, I hadn't spoken to I didn't speak to Coach for about a year. <clears throat> about three years later, I went and saw Coach, and I go, Coach, I know you're mad at me. For what I said on Sports Center after your accident, he goes, I wasn't mad at you. Are you weren't? He goes, No. He goes, Who told you that? I go, Well, everybody else is mad at me. He's like, He's like, Son, I have a problem. And I I nearly killed a lady. I nearly killed myself. He's like, You didn't do anything wrong. Don't let anybody tell you that anything wrong. You said exactly what I would have said if it was something that was like the greatest thing ever. I was That's like, amazing. It was amazing. amazing. And I was like, wait, you weren't mad? It's like, no, why were you mad at you? He's like, I was the one who had a DUI. <laughs> I was like, oh, I, I know that, but like most people like blame somebody else. Like, no, I was laid up in the hospital. Like, I wasn't mad. Anyway, crazy. <laughs> he's he's mad at you for doing the impression of him, is what he's uh, is No, what he, he, he likes, although he, one time he walked in, I was going full. I do a, I did a good, like, we had this, uh, I'll give you a quick. So we had a group of smart asses, right? I mean, I think I think most teams. I think one of the things we do a bad job of as media members is 
most of these kids are most of these guys are great kids. Most of them are really funny. They're they they get smarter and more well rounded when they get to college. And, and, it, and like I said, regardless of race. And so, you know, Adrian Peterson helped me get through college. He was super smart. Um, black guy from North North Little Arkansas. Joe Atkins from Oklahoma City. Don't ever shoot dice with him because he somehow finds a way to shave the dice, so he always wins. So they're sitting in the locker room one time, and <clears throat> we're playing. Oh man, well we're playing Jackson State, and the way it used to work when we would play these terrible guarantee games is coach would come in and he would write like 10 things on the board we'd have to do. And like, we didn't accomplish those things. He wouldn't have to have anything to do with the final score. But like, if you accomplish those things, you're going to win by 30 anyway. Uh, it'd be like, you know, score over 80 points, hold them to f- under 40% shooting, shoot over 50%, shoot, you know, over 80% from the free throw line, two to one assisted turnover ratio, like all these different things. And we had to like check every box in order to not have practice the next day. And so, I mean, that's how we handle those games. So we're playing Jackson State. It's my first year at Oklahoma State. And we're pretty good. We're like 7-0. and And, I don't know, we're up like 14, 15. And um, Brett Robish, who, again, dad was an NBA player, seven-foot center, senior, fifth-year senior. And, like Joe Atkins and me, total smartass. It's so, like we yell at each other. We curse at each other, whatever, on the court. It doesn't matter. So he and... Joe get in an argument over some sort of rotation, you know, defensive rotation. So that we come over to the sideline during a timeout and they're cursing at each other. And excuse my language, but Rover's like, Hey, shut the fuck up. Okay. I'm a senior. You're a sophomore. I know what I'm talking about. You don't, you were wrong. I'm right. Whatever. And so that, I mean, that's basically the, the conversation. So we have an assistant named Paul Graham. He went on to become head coach at Washington state and Paul, like he, like, parachuted into the conversation so it's like all he hears is him saying shut the fuck up to one of his teammates you know it's like yo brett and we're not supposed to curse like coach yells runs us for cursing they go crazy when we curse and all the players <laughs> curse and the assistant coaches curse but if coach hears it everybody gets in trouble so uh brett brett you shut your mouth brett you're... and he's like so brett robish turns and he looks straight at him like his assistant coach and he's like judge you don't know what the fuck you're talking about you know, shut the fuck up. <laughs> and like, you know, like this is my seventh game in a place. And I'm like, oh, my God. He, and co- and so Coach Sutton, again, like here's from one guy parachuting in a conversation to Coach Sutton, like spins around like, Brett, you go and sit. You're out of the game. You sit on the bench and I'll, you sit on the bench and don't say anything to anybody. I'm, you're, you're done. So he goes and sits down at the end of the bench and he's like laughing because there was nothing. They just walked into it, right? So meanwhile, he had already been taking most of the starters out of the game, and we lose all momentum. We go from like up, you know, sixteen, eighteen to now it's kind of a close game, and he has to put Brett back in the game. It was hilarious. So he's like laughing. He's like, "Oh shit, they had to come put me back in." <laughs> so we go in the locker room, and uh, game's over, and coach is hot. So he comes in, he's like, Red Robish, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. Your dad was a hell of a player. He's like, and I'm going to call your dad and tell him about your foul mouth and how you talk to one of my assistant coaches. He goes, call him, coach. He's like, Red, one more word and you're off this team. He's like, okay, coach. One more word, Brett. Okay, coach. It goes back and forth for like three minutes, right? And we're all like, Brett, shut up, man. Shut up. He'll throw you off the team. Shut up. So 
<laughs> so I use that because like two days later, we're in the locker room and I'm doing the back and forth like me and Joe Atkins or we're doing the we're he's Joe is playing Brett Robish and I'm playing Eddie Sutton and we're doing the back and forth that they did in the locker room and guys are crying and howling and you know coach comes walking in the locker room because he'd always come walk room and take take a pee but he would just try to check to see who's at practice early you know mm-hmm. and uh and he walked right into an Eddie Sutton impression and uh, he just he took one look in and saw me doing it went with my back to him and turned around and went out went the other way he was laughing so <laughs> uh anyway i mean that's like that's what it's really like to play in college it's not i mean i, I guess maybe like the one and done experience is different for most people but the more i travel around the more it's more like how I, it was when i played in my group than it is some of the stuff that other people portray absolutely absolutely so i guess which in a weird way, it brings us back to, you know, what, what everyone's talking about right now. And that is this crazy situation you had where it's, you're going from CBS sports reports start to come out that you're going to Fox to take a, an on-air job at, at Fox, bringing your radio show, which has been incredibly successful over to Fox. And then all of a sudden the Oklahoma state coaching job opens up again as Brad Underwood uh, leaves for Illinois and once again, just like a couple of years ago, your name year. starts to surface. What's, yeah, yeah. Just last year. Yeah. Um, your name starts to surface again. And I know you and I had talked uh, when we worked together at ESPN about the idea that I, you had told me that that was a job that if it ever opened up, that you would obviously love to have and that you'd love to coach college basketball. So I guess the first question in all this is just – what was Fox saying to you as they knew that this was your dream job? And I don't know whether you were in the midst of a negotiation with them or whether you'd signed anything. No, the negotiation but... was already done. It was weird. You know, it was like, um, you know, everything was done above board with CBS. They, they, they had, you know, I, we didn't negotiate with them until they, they, they asked for permission first. But by the time the, the job had come open, like everything except for, I, I think even the separation paperwork, because technically I was still under contract with until August, this coming August with CBS. So they allowed me out of my contract early. Everything was, was, was done. So like, it was, just, it was, you know, crazy timing. Like we're at the time we had actually sold our house and like the, like two days before some, some people randomly wanted to buy our house off of Facebook because we had kind of slowly not really posted pictures. We didn't want to make it public yet that we were moving. And um, so that happened. I was set to fly. I was flew out to Fox. Meanwhile, on my drive to the airport to fly to Fox, uh, Mike Holder, the athletic director at Oklahoma State, called me and asked me if I want to come interview for the job. Um, and so I, you know, I just, I called Jamie Horowitz, who has been a friend of mine since we worked together at ESPN. And I was like, Hey dude, um, they want me to interview for this job and I I don't want you to fire me, but I really want to do it. He's like, fire you. He's like, I want you to get the job and I want to be your assistant. You know, we'll get, we'll get all the players. Sounds like like Jamie. Right. And then, (laughs) and then I called Don Martin who, um, hired me for radio and he's like, you know, I'd hate to lose you, but I don't want you to, I'd hate to be the guy who held you back from a job like that. Like, go get it, partner. And so, 
yeah, they were they were unbelievable. Which is there's a juxtaposition with it with CBS, and I don't think CBS was was negative in the year in the previous year. They just they're, it's not an organization that likes any sort of publicity from from people other than hey, we love CBS. Right. And so when it came out the year before that I had been one of the candidates and talked to them about the job, or I actually talked to was a finalist for the Tulane job. You know, they were the, the response from a couple of people, not everybody, because there was a lot of supportive people. A couple of people was like, you want to, you'd rather be at Tulane than at CBS. I was like, well, like what does it matter to you? Like it's a, it's not, not a competition for you. It's a, you know, to me, if you knew anything about the job, you'd know why I'd want it. Like if you actually asked me a question about it, I could kind of, and besides like, you know, I mean, I, when Tulane contacted me, the first call I made was to my TV boss. The second call I made was to my radio boss before I called even my agent. Like I, I was completely above board about things. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I didn't feel like there was like a, hey, whatever you can do for it. Whereas, you know, again, like Fox, I hadn't even worked for them yet. They had this big press release on Wednesday and on Thursday, and I was out in LA. And on Thursday, I'm interviewing for a different job. Like, yeah, it was, it, it was, it was different, but it also showed me that that, and this is like the I know this is probably like the longest podcast ever. Um, it's fine. Um, like the the lesson I learned with Notre Dame and Oklahoma State is the same thing I learned with CBS and Fox. And I haven't again. I've worked a day with Fox and know these guys, but there's just a thing called fit in life. You know, I knew I wanted to marry my wife. Um, probably the third date we went on, maybe even the first. I just knew it was the right fit. Notre Dame is a great school. It is an unbelievable place. It's like going to school in a museum, and there's so many different cool things about it, and there's so many incredible alumni. But you know what? It just wasn't my school. It just wasn't a good fit for me. <clears throat> Regardless of what I did, I just I didn't feel – I would have felt more comfortable going back to my sophomore year, but it just didn't feel like me. Oklahoma State was me just fit me, you know, like I could be quirky. I could be myself. Uh, I was, you know, the California thing kind of worked there, you know, um, it just was, it was laid back. It was a good time. It was cold beer, hot women and basketball. Like That was the deal. And CBS and Fox are just feel like they're the kind of same thing. Like CBS is awesome. When, when Scott Van Pelt, I text him my first year, he's like, how about all the new suits you got? I was like, dude, they give you, they take you to wardrobe, they measure you, they give you whatever you want. It's incredible. They do car service and first class flights and and everybody is very, very nice to you. But it just, I don't know, it just wasn't, I'm more inside ingrained in sports and opinion and, and being a little bit more, being kind of real, whereas they're, they just want it everything to look clean and perfect. And that's fine. It just wasn't a perfect fit for me. And I think that's what, uh, that's the, what the coaching job is just a, an embodiment, embodiment of it. You know, like here's a, you know, remember how we started and we talked about like the perception of me, if you like me is I'm honest. If you don't like me, it's you're opinionated. Right. Mm-hmm. And there, that's exactly how I was described by some, some, some people at CBS, you know, boy, you have a lot of opinions. I was like, or I'm just very honest and in tune with what's really going on in sports. But here, here's one. Um, I've always worn sneakers when I call games and there's a logic behind it. Um, one, what's more comfortable sneakers or dress shoes. Second, <laughs> secondly, 
Secondly, players love it. Like if you wear a cool pair of sneakers, like players will stop you. It's a good like conversation starter. Like, oh, I like those kicks. Oh, what are you wearing? What do you... And you just, it kind of breaks the gap between like stiff TV guy and basketball player. Fans like it. And, um, and they kind of stick out. And it kind of was my, always been my thing. And other people have done it as well. I'm not like the first person, but I wear loud, bright sneakers. I'm a loud guy. Uh, it, it fits me. So I was going, I've gone about my business and I wear sneakers for like, I don't know, a year or two years at CBS. And somebody pulls me aside and is like, Hey, you know, can you not wear sneakers to games? I was like, well, why? Like, well, it doesn't, re- it's not the CBS way. I was like, you know what? No problem. I'll wear, you know, and you know, I, well, I wear, was wearing like dark, like dress jeans and sneakers. So I wear like dress jeans and, and, and so the next day I show, I literally showed up to work the next day and Clark had like a sneakers on. <laughs> and, and I was like, why are you wearing sneakers? He's like, oh, I saw you wear them. It's a great idea. He's like, plus they're comfortable and the kids love them. And I was like, what the hell? So I, I kind of, I walked into this, I, I was like a can't get right guy at CBS. Like I, I swear to God, I tried to do come around to like their culture of things. So it was like any little thing that you could perceive as like, Hey, I'm just being me and being colorful and having a good time. You know, it's like you mentioned Roy Williams, like Roy Williams got really mad at me because of two things I said last year. One, I said that everybody in college basketball is asking whether or not he'll retire because his knees hurt. His best friend died. They got the NCAA investigation. He doesn't have the same energy and recruiting he used to have. I was like, it's a big point in discussion. And, you know, the only problem was it wasn't, there's not really a surefire replacement for him, a Carolina guy replacement for him. So that got related to him as I said he was going to retire. So he hit the roof and he, you know, made fun of me having my shorts on backwards. Yeah. Um, and then there was also a, the same day at halftime, I did a cut of, you know, a highlight of them playing two types of defense. You know, one possession, they don't play any defense. And one possession, they play great defense. And I said, sometimes they play defense like it's a no-show class. And sometimes they play championship defense. They play championship defense. They should win the whole thing, right? So uh, it gets back to my bosses as, oh, it's a cheap shot towards North Carolina. But again, it's funny line. And North Carolina did have guys do no-show classes, not these guys. And who cares, right? Yes. I mean, yes. but Roy obviously cared, called, and, you know, that's what he got super, super mad about. And, um, you know, the difference where they asked me about it, they're like, like, what did you think of it? I was like, I don't think anything of it. I, I thought, and the guy who called me, said, I said, well, what did you think when I said line? He's like, I laughed. He's like, but then I knew Roy would be pissed. I was like, okay, so he's pissed. Like, this is sports on television. Like, not everything is meant to make everybody happy. It's funny. It's quirky. It's okay. Like, if he's mad at me, it's okay. But they're just, you know, I was perceived as a guy who, uh, I don't know, uh, they didn't they didn't know exactly what I was going to say next. I thought that was a strength, and they, I think that was a weakness to, for them. So, like I said, CBS is awesome. Uh, there's... Super, I get to work with Ian Eagle, who I think is the best play-by-play guy in the country. Spiro Divas, who I think is top five in calling basketball games in the country. He's really, really good. The producers there are incredible to deal with. And the one thing I did learn, which is different from ESPN, you know, ESPN, you do so many 
<clears throat> there's so many events that, and I was never on one of those crews. You know, that's one of the things I envy about, um, you know, Dan Dockage when he was working with Tarico. And like, you were going to the same producer every week, same sideline every week. You're doing two games a week. Like, you know each other. You can't finish each other's senses. So I had really good partners, Boog, Shambi, Bob with shoes in. Like, I did a bunch of games with those guys, and I liked them a lot. But it wasn't like every week. And I did work with Spiro every year, you know, for, I don't know, for four years straight. Um, but uh, but the one thing about ESPN is there's so many events. That a lot of times, and I was doing radio and doing studio, I fly in the day of a game do the game, fly home the next day, right? So when I was at CBS, you know, they fly in a lot of times a day or two days before. Well, I was doing a radio show and a TV show. I didn't take any time off. Then I'd fly in, and if it was the night before the game, well, I like to go to dinner with the coach or go over to the coach's house or with the visiting coach or go watch film with the team. Like, that's how I've always – that's how my process has always worked. Mm-hmm. And and they're like, hey, look, at CBS, we want you to have dinner with the crew. We want you to be a team, a family. And you know what? I actually really, really like that. I, I still like having dinner and watching film with coaches. Those are kind of my people. But I did feel like that's one part of the CBS culture I really liked. And because of it, like, I count on those guys as friends. Like, when, we would, when you go do NCAA tournament stuff, you're like spending – a week together and you have dinner together, breakfast together, lunch together, and you can finish. So it was that part of their culture is really cool, but all of this stuff kind of had to be learned because it wasn't something that we did at ESPN. ESPN is just like constantly asked for more, 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 more. Cause if you're not doing it, somebody else is doing it. Right. Right. The competitiveness. So Doug, how for the actual coaching job itself, um, take me through the interview process. So they, they call you up and Mike Holder says, Hey, you know, Brad Underwood's now gone, like come in, let's, let's talk about it. And, and the groundswell for, of support you got from the Oklahoma state community was insane. And you're getting people all over, uh, you know, media types or writing articles about how you'd be a great head coach and it's a no brainer. So you come in and, and, uh, what happens during that, that interview? So, um, I fly in the night before, and uh, I was supposed to stay out at the golf course where we had the interviews. And I had I had so many texts that I had to go. I was like going back and deleting texts so I could try and catch up with all the all the texts. I mean, like I had a thousand texts. So Mike Holder had texted me the the gate code to. There's a they have these uh, places to stay out at the golf course, and. So I roll into town like twelve thirty at night, and I he's in, he goes to sleep at like ten, and I didn't have the code because I mistakenly deleted his text. <laughs> and so um, one of the guys we went to school with, a friend of mine, his name's Kyle Waters, is an associate athletic director there. So I call Kyle at like twelve fifteen. It's like, hey dude, I hate to wake you up, but do you know the key code to Carson Creek? He's like, I have no idea. So he met me out there. We tried to like open the gate, we couldn't. So I just went and crashed at like Hampton Inn. I get up the next morning, my computer's dead. So I had all this like presentation stuff typed out. I go to Best Buy, I buy a new computer. I go to uh, bought Kinko. a new computer. Yeah, yeah. I figured it was worth it. Yeah. And uh, and uh, I do laptop whatever. Not, not desktop. I was setting up a desktop. That'd be funny. So um, I I go to Kinko's. I print out all this stuff. I put on a suit, tie, 
roll out there, get there just in time. And Mike Holder meets me out there and uh, he helps me carry all this stuff in. So I have presentation books for everybody. And um, I, I just, you know, I, in hindsight, I, I guess I wish I would have just gone like, all right, elephant in the room is I had coach. <clears throat> ask me whatever you want to ask me. And I hope I can answer it, you know, but instead I, you know, I didn't actually know really that well, three of the four uh, uh, regents that were in the room. And then uh, the president, I knew a little bit, um, but I don't like know him that well. And um, Mike Holder, I knew obviously very well. And there's Kevin Clintworth is the SID and he actually worked with my brother at San Diego state. So I thought that was a, that was a plus because he knew my, my dad and my brother and, he trusts my brother immensely. My brother would have been part of the staff. So what I did was I just kind of walked him through, hey, look, I've been thinking about this job for 15 years. And, you know, at Oklahoma State, Oklahoma Oklahoma State guys win. Our wrestling coach is a former Oklahoma State wrestler who had never coached before. He's their most successful coach ever. Football coach had never been head coach before. He's our most he's also Oklahoma State alum. He'd never been head coach before. Our baseball coach had been a hitting coach with Vanderbilt. He's an Oklahoma State alum. Like, you know, what's the correlation here? I go mm-hmm. and we're in a time, a need of of great loyalty, and we don't plan on leaving. We're not building a team. We're going to build a program, and let me tell you how we're going to do it. And so I kind of I took him through. Hey, um, you have to have some core values here. At the core values, you know, we want to recruit players of great character. Uh, we want to compete every day. Conditioning is not just about conditioning on the floor. It's about conditioning in the classroom, getting, getting your rest. Um, I said, look, I don't know everything that goes on with this team, but I know that academics, Marilyn Middlebrook, is awesome. I know that Jake, who's the trainer, strength trainer, and Coach Glass, uh, that we are, I'm lockstep with them in terms of their philosophy in how to build a better athlete. So you take training off the table. You take academics off the table. Now, the second you hire me, it's going to be like a revival. We'll bring back all the former players. Fans are excited. Fill up the gym. And, oh, yeah, by the way, um, we're going to go get players. And here's how we're, who's, here's my staff. Here's the type of players. Here's five targets that the second you hire me, I'm going to call, and I think we can get all five of them. We're going to keep all the current players. They're going to be happy because everybody. it's going to be a big thing. Um, and then I kind of opened it up for questions and I'll be honest with you, the questions were a little bit disappointing, but I felt like I answered them to the best of my capabilities, you know, what did they want to know? Uh, they want to know how I plan to get the students in the building, which was kind of a layup. I said, you know, I think we're going to have a pretty good, we'd have a pretty good groundswell for season tickets. The second you hire me, I said, but students, I said, you make it like a rock concert, you know, you I want to be the place that people want to be. I said, you know, Brad Underwood took the coaches show back on campus. I said, I, I think, I think guys, I can do a pretty good coaches show. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> they laughed. And um, I said, you know, um, I want to, you know, I, our practices are going to involve music. Our games are going to involve music. We're going to have a, you know, a pregame, special pregame video for every game. So we're going to do community outreach. Uh, we're going to go to other sport. We're going to go to other varsity sporting events because when you support the other teams, they'll support you. So I, you know, I, I thought that was one. Um, they asked me about the current staff, and I'll be honest with you, I didn't know Mike Boynton. Uh, I've shared, I've texted with him twice, but uh, very cordial. But I mean, I 
I, I, I didn't know him and I still don't really know him now. So I didn't really, I said, you know, I'm open for all considerations. You know, Lamont Evans, I think is an outstanding recruiter. Um, I will tell you that his focus is more Florida and, you know, I don't, I think that's a weird fit for Oklahoma state, but I would love to talk to Lamont. And then, uh, and then Danny is uh, now he left for, uh, he's now at, at Tulsa. He's Phil Forte and Marcus Smart's old high school coach. He won 700 mm-hmm. games and he really was the kind of architect behind the defensive change. Like I, I'd love to talk to Danny. I was like, but I, I, you know, I don't know what his plans are. I said, you know, I'm, I'm open to, I'm open to it, but let me kind of take you through who my staff would be preliminarily. And I'd obviously have a, leave a couple spaces for other possibilities. Uh, what else they asked me? They asked me how I play and, <clears throat> you know, again, like every, I said, you know, everybody's going to tell you we're going to play fast. So, it's amazing. Every coach that's ever gotten a job says we're going to play fast. They don't all play fast. Right. I said, but um, I'll tell you the one thing we will do. And I, and, and Phil Martelli kind of helped me with this and, and I, it's a philosophy I really believe, which is, he said, you know, some of these coaches, they try and show how much they know. And in the spring, they put in their offense, you know, <laughs> it's like, why would you do that? Like, first, you're just going to wear your, wear your kids out. Second of all, what what good is an offense if a guy can't make a shot? It's like, you know what you should do? It's like, you should spend 30 minutes every, you know, every practice having guys play one-on-one. Because at the end of any end of any any play you're going to run, you need a kid to jump up and make a shot. And if they practice making their shots, it's more likely they're going to make it. I said plus, and so one of the things that my my brother believes in, which I believe in as well, is during the week in practice you do what's called a pro day, you know, or it's a you day, where we're not going to work on the team, we're going to work on your game. And mm-hmm. so it's a level of investment in the players, and once they feel like you're invested in them, they'll invest more in you. So that was some of the stuff we talked about. So why ultimately do you think that they went with Boynton as opposed to going with you? Uh, I I would guess that they um, there was a fear of a guy who hadn't coached and there was a fear of uh, losing players and they felt like um, here is an energetic 35-year-old guy who you know, probably told him he could keep all the players, which he has, um, with the exception of, of Juwan, who went pro. Mm-hmm. And uh, they wanted to give him a shot. But I, I, I honestly, I, I guess the best possible explanation was they felt like because the, it would be their kid's third head coach in 365 days, that they wanted some sort of consistency. Um, I, that's, I wasn't really offered up a explanation and I didn't really ask for one, but right. that's my best one I can come to. Yeah. It's, which is pretty remarkable because in a weird way, that's what opened the door for you. That made so much sense. I mean, you know, you think Underwood comes from Stephen F. Austin, you figure, Oh, this guy's going to be here for the long haul leaves a year later. And you think, all right, well now's the perfect time to go and get Doug. And that, the most convincing argument that I've heard for hiring you, I mean, I, I think it's a no-brainer myself, but just in terms of what people have laid out in the media is the idea that right away, every kid in America is going to talk to you, not to mention all of your connections on the uh, AAU circuit and the high school circuit, but every kid is going to want to talk to you because you are a celebrity in your own right. And then 
And then in addition to that, like you're a basketball guy through and through. And I, I think for people to think that you as an analyst aren't somehow qualified to be a coach, if you weren't the son of a coach, if you weren't the brother of a coach, um, and the game wasn't so important to you. I mean, you don't look at the game. You look at the game like a coach does. And I think that's what's so valuable about you as an analyst. And I think that's what's made you so successful is that people learn from you as they're watching games. And I know, I, I think by all the text messages you talked about from the college basketball community just goes to show how much uh, everyone does respect your knowledge of the game because that's not something that gets passed along easily. In fact, when I talk to analysts or text with them, talk to him on the phone i hear all the time like you hearing this idiot and it'll be some guy that used to play i don't want to go and name names but you know as well as i do there's guys out there calling games that are getting popular and and big and all but you know maybe they were good players but they aren't very good as analysts and they certainly wouldn't be good coaches they're just names and uh just like the the greatest comment i've gotten is i have people who have asked me like so when are you going back into coaching (laughs) like i ain't coaching (laughs) and they're like really (laughs) Like I couldn't, couldn't tell. Actually, um, you know, a guy who I've become close with is uh, Ben Jacobson at Northern Iowa. And mm-hmm. I, I ca- called his first game, one of his first games, I think his first game when they opened the McLeod Center. This was years ago. And he text, he, he actually called me when I called the New Mexico, uh, when Harvard beat New Mexico. Um, NCAA tournament. He called me afterwards. And it was in the NCAA tournament. And, um, He's like, hey, congratulations. I was like, why? He's like, uh, my wife said I'm no longer allowed to watch you call a game. And I go, why is that? He goes, because we say the exact same thing at the exact same time. <laughs> you know, we're critical <laughs> of the exact, you know. And, and I was like, that's an incredible, because I think he's a, a magnificent coach. Like, that's a, a great compliment. And so it's weird because, you know, the guys I've kind of formulated my my play-by-play goal after Doug Collins obviously is one. I think he's terrific. Um, and I do, you know, I like the idea of when people say, Hey, I learned something from you. Um, I always, I always liked the matter of factness of John Sunvold. Uh, I thought mm-hmm. he was, I thought he was, he was, uh, incredible. And then a little bit of Jeff Van Gundy in that, um, <clears throat> there's a, a lot of honesty, a little bit of self deprecation and, uh, a lot of kind of teaching and knowledge that kind of goes into it. And um, that's kind of how I came. And then, you know, like I think Hubie is a little too technical. Um, and, but, but I, I just didn't ever want to be the guy who, I think some people, the old way of doing it maybe is you're like a commentator, right? Like play happens, you make a comment. And I would credit, honestly, Dan Steer who uh, kind of laid in me at a very early early stage with the, hey, tell me why. Tell me why. Challenge yourself to tell me why something happened. And then, you know, and what I've done is I've taken it to the next step, which is I challenge producers to help me show people why, as right. well as tell them. And when you can do that, people are like, oh, like, um, and, you know, like the, the, the best, my best day actually at CBS was I called a Carolina-Miami game. And this was three years ago. And uh, what's funny is I said then that Carolina will win a national championship for the next couple of years. And this is when people were down on Carolina. And um, they almost won too. <clears throat> and um, anyway, so 
Carolina system is the exact same system Kansas ran, but I I I know I I know how he coaches and what he's thinking, and so I showed a couple of different things that that they do that's special and unique, and so I got back uh, to my house on <clears throat> on Sunday after calling the game in Miami, and I got a call on Monday from Ross Malloy, who's like the head of the talent department at CBS, and he goes. You know, I don't know if Sean's going to call you or not, but I got to tell you about something that happened in our talent meeting. And I was like, well, what happened? He's like, well, Sean read a text from David Faraday, who, and Sean McManus thinks David Faraday's the, the, uh, the sun rise and sets by the word David Faraday. But I don't know who this guy is calling the Carolina Miami game. I was like, oh, here we go. <laughs> but he's damn, he's, he's damn near like perfect. I've learned like five things about basketball that I didn't know. You should give him. You should give him more games or something like that. And uh, it was great. And it was one of those like, yeah, it's it's. And and the the point about the coaching is, and this is one of the disconnects I had with even Steve Karasek was is a dear friend of mine. He really helped guide me at CBS and helped me clean up some of my stuff and get better. And what I would always tell him is like, like, look, I want you to be able to understand what I'm talking about, but I also want to be able to say things that coaches think are smart. Like that's actually the audience I'm shooting for. And he's like, well, that's a mistake with CBS. I'm like, okay, well, like I respect that. And I want to sound good for the CBS audience, but I want to play to both audiences because I think one of the things that CBS is missing is something that, that coaches go like, yes, this is what we're trying to, this is what I'm trying to teach. Or this is what I think about basketball. And uh, yeah, so that's kind of how I, how I look at it. I, I want, you know, th- those are the people that I'm trying to, to please or impress. Now you can't try and show off and be and impress them too much and talk in like binary code and just throw out terms. You got to do it just a couple of times, once or twice a half if you can, and you really got to work to make sure that the words marry the video. But right. uh, yeah, I mean, um, it's been it's been awesome to try and learn a craft from scratch. And and in all honesty, like I don't know if I was any good or if I am any good now, but I do know that I've gotten better over these last five years. Last question on this, and that is your brother, Greg, you've mentioned him quite a bit throughout the podcast, uh, assistant at Oregon state and a guy that for years I've thought that is going to get a head job on the West coast. I've, I've just think it's again, a no brainer and, and it hasn't happened so far. What, what did Greg think about the fact that here he is, you know, um, he was older than you, excellent player, went to UCLA for a few years and goes and, you know, walks on to Drake and then, you know, starts to make it through the coaching ranks and he's, he's grinding as a coach and right. experiencing that lifestyle. So w- what did he think when, when you first started talking to him or as this has all gone on about you trying to jump in and, and be a coach? Well, I mean, he was in, I mean, look, if they had a good year, it's, it, it's just, this is what makes it a crummy profession, right? Like, is he a worse coach than he was last year? I mean, they they went to the end. It was their third. Last year was their last season, not this season, was their second year in Corvallis as a staff. They went to the NCAA tournament for the first time in 25 years, Oregon State, right? Yep. So this year they had they had to run off a couple of kids. They had some injuries. Tinkle goes they down. Had, I mean, yeah, and, and Stephen Thompson was hurt before Tinkle went down. He comes mm-hmm. back in. There's just everything that could go wrong went wrong. And they lost some 
early close games that they should have won. And so I think, what, they went five games this year? I mean, it's bad. And they'll be good next year. They got Ethan Thompson coming in, who's the Mr. Basketball in the state of uh, California. And Tinkle's back. Stephen Thompson's back. Um, a big kid Drew is back when he pulls his name out of the draft. I don't know why he did that, but they'll be they'll be they'll be back. They'll be you know, at minimum five hundred, probably better than that. So he's not a he's not a, he didn't forget how to coach basketball, but it takes a strong AD to go like, hey, I'm going to pluck a guy off a five win staff and name head coach. And this year there was UCSB, which I mean he would be awesome for, and you know considering where he recruits, I mean frankly he's more qualified than. Wyking Jones to be the Cal head coach, but Wyking was there on staff. Mm-hmm. Greg was there for six years. Greg's the longest tenured uh, assistant coach in the Pac-12. I mean, um, so what do he think? I mean, I'm sure there's some inherent jealousy. It's not fair, um, but he's also my brother, and he knows that like my, you know, part of my sale was I don't know everything about basketball. Anybody who comes in here and tells you they know everything. One is an asshole, and two, they're not telling the truth. And so I want to surround myself with the best staff. It's like Greg Gottlieb is a bulldog recruiter, and he's a great in player development, and he will be he will handle the defense because that's what that that was our negotiation the year before. Like, how much is how much do I have to pay you to get you to live in Stillwater, Oklahoma? And he <laughs> told me, I was like, all right, that's a lot of money. We'll we'll work on that. I go, what else? He's like, I want one into the floor. I go, you get defense. <laughs> I get offense. I get the draw. You get the you get the slides. So, um, and and the other thing, and this is kind of, and this is was something I discussed. You know, I I I I discussed with Todd Licklatter about bringing him on as a assistant to the head coach with Paul Hewitt, coach of the national championship game. You know, Lick was national coach of the year. Miles Simon, who's my longest friend outside of my brother in, in basketball these are the guys that talked about my staff and one of the things that greg said like hey you know like all these guys are really strong personalities i said i know i said here's how i i envision it greg is i want guys to challenge each other in the office when the door is closed to challenge each other to support your argument to win the room like hey, this is what how we're going to do it and why we're going to do it and this is why you should believe me and all those guys that I listed are really smart and know a lot about basketball and have been through a lot. And I'm okay being challenged. I don't, I'm not threatened by other people. Like Paul Hewitt is crazy smart. I don't know if you know him. I mean, he's, he's, he's one of those too smart for his own good guys. Mm-hmm. And um, some people are like, you, do you want Paul Hewitt? Like, man, he really, he's, he's super smart. He knows he's super smart. I was like, so like people think I'm arrogant. Like, okay, fine. Like <laughs> I want people that challenge each other to get better. And so I said, you know, like, look, dude, um, you're, I want you to challenge me to be better and I'm going to challenge you to be better. I'm not going to do it for the team, but I will, I will do it. Uh, um, I would, you know, that's how I want a staff to work. So he, he was all in on it. And I think it just sucked that they had a bad year in a year where there were a couple of jobs, UCSB most specifically, but there's a couple of others that, Normally, he would have gotten in on. And it also just proves to me when people have said, hey, you should go be an assistant. Like, why? It's really hard to get in a job as an assistant. Like, you have to, everything has to time out right. You know, you have to, you know, whereas I have a really good job. Like, And apparently my boss now is like, Nikki, if you want to tinker around with it and it's your dream job, it's a good thing. Like, you can do that. We'll support you. Now, I can't do it every job that comes open. That wouldn't be fair to them. 
and nor is it realistic to go after every job that gets open. But um, my, my, I'm, you know, my heart hurts for him because he's awesome. He's not just a good coach and a good guy, but he's really good in front of a room. Um, he's a good, warm personality, and he's coached under really good coaches. The problem is that he just doesn't have, you know, one of those godfathers. Like Mike Montgomery was a great coach, but for whatever reason, he's not seen as the kind of godfather that Patino is or, mm-hmm. um, you know, Izzo is or whatever. And, you know, Steve Fisher is a great coach, but Steve Fisher is, you know, he – He's just like a normal person. Like if you call him and ask him about Greg, he'll say, yeah, he's a great coach. He's a great guy. You should hire him. But he's not one of these guys that goes in there and like crushes for his guy. And that's just not his way. It's not his personality. And so I think, and because he didn't play, I think those things kind of have worked against him some. Mm-hmm. Well, Doug, I've taken up so much of your time, man. I, I really can't, I cannot thank you enough. And, and not just for the time, but um, I know it's uh, a lot of uh, insight that you just offered me that you, you haven't necessarily shared so much publicly. So I really, I, I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Um, but I, you know what I like is you did a lot of research. Like who does, who does that for interviews? <laughs> nobody, 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 no, no, nobody does. I'll, yeah. I'll say this. So, so this is my, uh, I, I tweeted this and I mean, it. I, you know, I I do have perspective at some point and I I get it quite often because um if you catch me on a bad day I will kick myself over something dumb I've said or done or made somebody mad or whatever and you know things I didn't have to do to which who knows if it would take me to this place but you know I'm I'm 41 I got to play at two awesome colleges play professionally in three countries as home countries in like 10 uh, worldwide, played in 10 or 11. Um, now I've gotten to work for three networks and covering college basketball and talking about sports. Like it's a, I'm, I'm still living a pretty dang good life. And I guess the, you know, like, um, I, I, my, my tweet was, if you're, somebody's not laughing at your dreams, dreams might not be big enough. It's true. Like I, you know, did I want to be playing the NBA? Yeah. Did I play in the NBA? No. But outside of that, I can't really imagine accomplishing more. And and yet, uh, and yet, I still I do want more. I'm a competitive person, and so it's okay to be that way. You just have to find, surround yourself with talented people, and find people that understand who you are, what you're about. And me, I'm about having fun, talking about sports. Love talking about basketball, and I like like-minded people. Like, but they don't have to think exactly the same. They just have to like to have an opinion about things, and uh, challenge themselves to get better every day. Uh, that's. I, I think you summed it up. The only thing you you forgot is is your wife, who, I mean, she's a saint because not only raising your kids, but also being along for the ride every step of the way. I mean, I understand what it's like to be in this business and how difficult it can be with nights and weekends and all. And and some of the ride you've explained, I I don't know how she's still around, Doug. So good good for you on that as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, look, that's the great thing about the Fox gig, right? Is that it's what we've ultimately been searching for, and um, it's that you know I left ESPN for no other reason than I mean I wanted to do the Final Four at CBS, which I did, but I also wanted to be in California, and the big reason was one, my parents, and now my mom 
but also because the exact same time slot in California means I get to be with my kids in the afternoon. And as you know from working in the business, like if you do college basketball at ESPN or at CBS or at Fox, like that's five months of Saturdays and Sundays that you're not around. <laughs> okay, so mm-hmm. all right, which is fine. It's a great gig. Nobody's complaining about it. Like, but now when you take out, you're doing afternoon radio, and you're doing five weekends. You're like, okay, so that means you basically have seven months of weekends per year, and that's the only time you're going to see your family. And that just wasn't acceptable to either of us. And, you know, don't get me wrong. She's an awesome, like you said, she's a saint and she has been super, super supportive. But I'm not going to act like she hasn't said, and and this job finally does it. She hasn't said, hey, you know what? You got to put your family above your career. And the great thing about Fox is I can do both. And uh, that's probably the reason I'm most psyched about it is in addition to uh, really being fired up for the people I'm going to work with and the fact that they're a company that's in growth mode, the fact that I'm actually going to put my family first, live where she wants to live, try and set her up the way she wants to be set up, that makes me feel good because that's like that's your job as a as a husband, right, is to, is to, to help your family and family unit. Well, I, I couldn't be happier for you, so congratulations. It's uh, awesome, and I'm really excited to see what's going on as you uh, take the Gottlieb Show to Fox, also seeing you on TV. I think Gottlieb Show starts April 24th. Is that still right? April 24th, and uh, it'll be on all our affiliates as well as satellite radio, which is awesome because I've been off satellite for five years. Time to get back on. Yeah. Oh, can't wait to listen. So, Doug, thanks once again, and uh, we'll catch up really soon. Thank you. Anytime. Huge thanks to Doug Gottlieb for jumping on the Great Point podcast. Uh, really can't thank him enough for all of his time and, and sharing all those stories about his his career, that Oklahoma State coaching job, and, of course, uh, his great work in, in the broadcasting industry. You can catch Doug on Twitter at Gottlieb Show. Tune into that radio show on Fox Sports, and you can catch him on, on Fox Sports uh, doing broadcasting work as well on the TV side. Um, as for us, you can catch the Great Point Podcast on Twitter at Great Point Pod. You can catch me, Adam Stanko, on Twitter at Naismith Lives. And um, that'll do it for us. We'll catch you next time.